Welcome to the Nerd of the Rings podcast. To get the latest Middle-Earth-related videos, including Tolkien Explained, Complete Travels, and Theories, visit youtube.com slash nerdofthering's. This audio podcast is made possible by the support of my wonderful Patreon supporters. To learn how you can score some exclusive perks while supporting the channel, visit patreon.com slash nerdofthering's. Welcome, everyone, to Nerd of the Rings. Today, I am joined by a very special guest, author Ian Nathan. Uh, Ian has covered such film directors as Ridley Scott, Tim Burton, Quentin Tarantino, the Coen brothers, um, as well as writing books on The Terminator, Alien, Fantastic Beasts, and, of course, the one that we will no doubt reference the most today, Anything You Can Imagine, Peter Jackson and the Making of Middle Earth. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, very much a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'll, I'll start off with the, the very beginning here. How were you first introduced to Tolkien and the world of Middle Earth? Um, I think my, my story is probably quite a familiar one. I was uh, probably about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. And I was at uh, what we call primary school in the UK. Mm -hmm. And we had a shelf of books at the back of the classroom. And I'd read, I think, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and been very taken with it at that age. And alongside where all the, the Narnia books was, was this book called The Hobbit, sitting beside it. And I'd kind of flicked through it and seen, I, think it was, it, I don't think it was Alan Lee pictures. I think it was actually the Tolkien original pictures in it. It was oh. that, that edition going back yeah. a few years now. And I eventually, I, I sort of, I think I got my mum or someone to buy it for Christmas and was totally taken with it and at the age of 11 it's a wonderful book and that lovely kind of bedtime story feel that it has the hobbit yeah. and that through that i looked you know the front front pages and i learned it was in called the lord of the rings and i thought well, that's a sequel and obviously at 11 or 12 you're imagining a book like the hobbit the hobbit right. part two of course lord of the rings isn't the hobbit no. part two it's <laughs> it's a grown-up book in many ways it's vast and i had to get my head around the fact that it was three different books and it was one story and all those kind of complicated things you have to try and understand and I remember I was sort of I had my pocket money and I was in a bookshop and I, I bought a lot of books at that age I I saw the two towers and I wasn't smart enough to realize that wasn't the first part it was ah, the middle part yeah. <laughs> I bought the two towers and I, then I figured out it wasn't the right part of the Lord of the Rings to have so I think for a couple of years I just had the two towers on my shelf and then finally, I think I got to about 14 and I, and I kind of got the, the kind of the, the stamina and the, I took the deep breath and, and, yeah. and I kind of plunged in. I had a copy of the book by then. And, and it must have taken me, I don't know, a year to read. You know, I suppose there must be like an interesting kind of a survey you could do amongst readers of The Lord of the Rings to work out what are the points they kind of they surge ahead and what are the points they kind of get, they get a bit tired. I think you, can, you get to the Council of Elrond and then mm -hmm. you slow down a bit because it's such yeah. a big chapter. And I know that the writers, you know, Philippa Boyens and, and Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, you know, felt that as well as they were writing the script. You know, it, it's such yeah. a hurdle to overcome, Council of Elrond. And then you get Minds of Moria and all that stuff, so it quickens again. And, and then I think you get to, um, I have such a clear memory of this, sort of writers of the Rohan around about then, and it all kind of mm -hmm. slows down again because yeah. there are long, longer chapters. So I tell you, it, it's a journey of a book to go on. But it was a, it was a, a wonderful journey, a really significant one as, as you know, life would prove to be. And and I kind of went through that phase, 14, 15 years old of 
once you read Lord of the Rings, you just went looking in the fantasy section of the of the bookshop and read Moorcock and and all the kind of greats and all the not quite so greats. Yeah. <laughs> and by the time you know, I discovered girls and going out and 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 trying to be cool, I kind of left it behind a little bit. <laughs> and then if you you kind of we flip cut forward to um, the fact I've become a. a a film critic and journalist mm-hmm. uh, after university and I joined a magazine called Empire mm-hmm. which is a very big film magazine in the UK mm-hmm. and I kind of took many years spent 20 years on Empire but during my period on on Empire I learned or the whole staff learned that there were these rumblings that a serious attempt was going to be made on adapting mm-hmm. the movie and being quite high up in Empire at that time uh, I kind of what we call bagsied it for myself. I would kind of, I kind of went, I, whatever the territory is, I'm going to occupy it. This is going to be my baby, you know, yeah. whatever comes of this. And I held on to that, you know, tightly. <laughs> and I managed to cover the films for, for, for the magazine. So it was, it was kind of a wonderful chance to kind of re-embrace my 14 year old self and that mm. wonderful journey I went on. I'd read the book several times in the interim and I read it again, obviously just as, as the film sort of went into production. But it was just a chance to sort of rediscover that little part of my brain mm-hmm. in which all the characters still lived and all those incredible locations with, you know, the memories of, of Hobbiton, the kind of, well, the kind of the memories in my imagination of those places, the mines and all those kind of things. It was all still there. Yeah. It's fantastic to kind of um, let it all live again. Absolutely. And I, I love that, you know, as as I uh, mentioned before we started recording, I'm, I'm currently making my way through the book. I'm probably a, a third of the way in. And uh, one thing that'll no doubt be a delight to Tolkien fans is you spend a good chunk of time talking about Tolkien himself and um, the attempts, previous attempts to adapt um, even before Peter Jackson and um you give you give quite a bit of background there, and I, I can say as a as a Tolkien fan, we kind of dodged some bullets there. <laughs> it's it's a strange world actually, and I mean, one, in sort of setting out to do uh, the book, uh, anything you can imagine, I kind of started with one policy: I was not going to write a book about Tolkien. Hmm. You know, I wasn't going to write a book about swords and elves and magic rings. I mean, there right. are fantastic books out there on these subjects covered. I was going to write a book about crazy New Zealanders who, who wanted mm-hmm. to do the impossible to, to adapt this, you know, yeah. Everest of, of a fantasy novel. But obviously you kind of want to, to set up the idea of how impossible that is before mm-hmm. you, you show how it was achieved. Yeah. So what I did was I started to explore, yeah, I knew about Ralph Bakshi. I'd seen mm-hmm. Ralph Bakshi's attempt at the cinema and I, I had kind of vague ideas of John Borman's attempt. And mm-hmm. I knew a little bit about this story about the Beatles, you wanting yep. to make it, and yeah, you know, these, these they were kind of myths. And I, I kind of, yeah, and in covering the films for, for Empire, I'd kind of explored a bit more of those and talked to people about them. But I hadn't really gone into huge amounts of, of depth about the various attempts made. And once you start sort of chipping away, you realize this is just, there was this kind of a industry of people who attempted to do it mm-hmm. and how the rights passed through Hollywood is a fascinating story in its own right. I mean, yeah. Tolkien sold them when he was still alive. He sold them to uh, United Artists. Mm-hmm. It had various dealings w- with, with different producers who would come back to him with proposed screenplays. It's all, it's all in the book, but it's sort of, and they drove him mad. He, he <laughs> turned this phrase silification. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's just because he said everything became Disney. He loathed Walt Disney. He loathed Snow White and all those things. And he 
feared that his book would be turned into a Walt Disney style film. So anytime he got sort of uh, proposals and screenplays that said silly things about enchanted castles and clouds and unicorns, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it just got his ire up yeah. and he became furious. Um, he was quite canny. I think I, I, I got out of that, you know, the studying it was that he, I think he got Hollywood. He knew how to operate yeah. with it. Yeah, he, he knew the deal and he said it in his letters, if you read them, it's cash or kudos. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you can sell out to a Hollywood studio and lose your influence on what comes out, or you kind of try and keep the kudos, you try and keep it close to home. And there were various radio adaptations for the BBC and all these things mm -hmm. that were done. And then, then I think he, he wanted to fund his, his grandchildren's university education. It was as simple yeah. as that. And he wasn't yet, you know, uh, you know, enjoying the spoils and riches of the book success. So he just sold the rights to UA to, to fund that. He sort of let go of it and said, well, do what you will. And obviously, the legacy of that was huge. There was various complications with what the Hobbit would be and who could do the Hobbit. Silmarillion obviously didn't exist as a book right. at this point, so it yeah. wasn't part of the deal. There was no sense of any TV rights with that. It was just mm -hmm. film rights. But what's fascinating is within that, and I've seen the, the original um, deal, is that whoever ha owned the rights that Tolkien sold were allowed to make any sequels they wanted. Mm -hmm. They could take those characters and do something with them that's entirely not of Tolkien. So yeah. Warner Brothers, who now have those rights, could easily do a, a sequel to Lord of the Rings and just mm -hmm. make it up. I think they, they understand that that might infuriate a lot yeah. of people. <laughs> but I'm not, I bet there are meetings uh, at Warner occasionally where they go, well, we could go back in. You know, there, There's yeah. money in, in this. You know, if this <laughs> Amazon thing doesn't work out, maybe we go back in and we, we find out what happened to Aragorn and all these characters and, and revisit yeah. I, I don't know if that's happening, but it's it's perfectly uh, permissible as, as regards to the rights. It, it certainly wouldn't be surprising. I mean, I like you said, I'm sure there's been a conversation where it's come up at some point, and uh, yeah, thus thus far, um, cooler heads have prevailed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, it's 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 a dangerous territory, but yeah. you know, studios are well known for entering dangerous territory. So right, who yes, knows? yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I had never heard before reading your book, um, the John Borman uh, treatment, the the proposed script for for that adaptation. Um, and I I won't spoil it here, but I will say, you know, if you're if you're interested in it, it's uh, for all those who are who are afraid that the Amazon show is going to be, you know, kind of turned into a Game of Thrones copy. This is got some aspects that are very game of thrones ish yes. so so yeah you should you should uh expose yourself to uh you know at least the highlights to know know how how big of a bullet we dodged with that one yeah it's quite interesting i've read that script because peter jackson had the script um mm. his manager ken caymans was the manager of, of, of john borman as well so yeah. they had a connection and I, he got the script and he, he gave me a copy of the, the script and it's mad i mean borman yeah. if you've seen excalibur you'll have an idea of kind of where John Borman was coming from. Yeah. And yeah, he faced, he, he did get the novel down to a kind of workable uh, level. You know, it's a three hour mm -hmm. film. I think he proposed in the end, but it was full of sex. It's full of this kind of yeah. rather hippie like ideas about spirituality. Yeah. And, and it's full of mad humor, really mad, mad humor. There's very sort of John Borman, but uh, if you're a Tolkien fan, it would just make you scream. It drive it's, you crazy. Yeah. <laughs> So what uh, what then was your your first experience with Peter Jackson's films? Obviously, you know, you had uh, the uh, 
immense burden of um, <laughs> as you're working for Empire to, to cover yeah. these films. Uh, what was your first experience covering those films? Well, I, I'd seen um, The Frighteners and, I, and I'd seen um, Heavenly Creatures and I liked Heavenly Creatures a lot. Um, I sort of came around to The Frighteners a bit later. I'm not sure I liked it that much the first time. But like a lot of people, that film kind of grew on me. And then I, I'd, I'd done some of the exploration of the early sort of spatter films. So I was a bit kind of like, who is this guy they've given this book to? Is, is he really the right guy, as, as a lot of people probably did at the same time? And, and my first encounter with, uh, with Jackson in terms of interviewing him is Cannes in 2001. Um, and I don't know if you, you kind of know the order of events, but obviously they were shooting still. And there'd been a lot of bad press about what was going on in New Zealand. They'd started up these films and everybody thought it was just mad, real kind of Heaven's Gate style, you know, catastrophe. It was going to destroy New Line. It was just <laughs> the, the most ridiculous project ever launched. Everyone knew this book was impossible to you know, adapt. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the whole background with Harvey wasn't helping. I think he was kind of right. maybe sending out some, some poor rumors into the industry. Mm. So what... New Line very wisely chose to do was, as, as Michael Desky, the executive producer, said, change the conversation. They needed to lift people's spirits as regard how good this, this film is going to be. I mean, they'd seen the footage. They'd seen what was going on. None of the rest of us had any idea. Well, you know, it's, there'd been a little bit of a, um, a teaser trailer, but no one really knew exactly you know, what, what was going on out there. Yeah. So they decided to do this, this preview in Cannes which was in May before the December of the release of Fellowship of the Ring. And it was going to be a big press event and they'd do interviews, a big party, all this was going to go on. But there was still a lot of frowns and scepticism. And I remember, you know, I'd be very excited. because I was kind of, you know, at Empire, our, our ethos was always, we wanted films to be good. We didn't want films to be bad. You know, we mm -hmm. wanted people to go to the cinema. That was where we came from. Yeah. So, you know, we were all just, on, on the side of the Lord of the Rings being great, you know, and we, we, we were worried, but yeah, we wanted the new Star Wars. We wanted this to be fantastic. Right. And so you know, we were upbeat, but we were scared. And I remember waiting to see the, the 25, 26 minute bit, bit of footage they, they took to Cannes. Outside is this small backstreet cinema in Cannes called the Olympia. And it was me and about sort of, I don't know, 10 other journalists sort of huddled by the doors at, very quietly at 10 o'clock one morning. It was rather overcast for Cannes. And I just can make clear memories. And the doors were locked for some reason. Someone had forgot to open the front doors and we're all kind of pressed <laughs> up against the glass like, like zombies. You know, and clearly we were all like 14-year-old boys you know, wanting to get in to see this, this footage. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, very, very famously, it, it was an astonishing bit of uh, preview. And it was just you know, in an instant that changed the whole conversation on Lord of the Rings. It was just fantastic. It was it, the majority of it was the the battle with the cave troll in Moria. Mm. That was kind of the okay. backbone of it. And there was kind of two montages either end. One mm. sort of uh, Hobbitony and, and fellowshipy at the beginning, and then incredibly there was footage from all three films at the end, including oh, really? stuff that never made it. That was redone and and mm. fixed. Just a taster of all three films, and it was just fantastic. It was more than we we, we could have really have expected. And everyone just came out going, okay, okay, now it, now it's now it's rolling, now it's happening. And I interviewed, so, uh, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. I said, and I interviewed, I did all the press conferences and I did the kind of round tables with the, the huge amounts of cast that were, were there and they brought all the hobbits together. And yeah. it was kind of Aragorn and, and Boromir uh, together doing theirs. So it was a really nice little sort of way they divided up the talent. 
and I did a, a one-on-one interview with Jackson. And I think he was quite, at the time, he didn't want to be in Cannes, I don't think. I didn't, he, yeah, he's not a great traveler at the best of times. <laughs> and he was, you know, he, he was halfway through this film and, and you know, I, I think he understood the need for this, this event, but mm-hmm. he was at the same time, he just like, yeah, he said, I want to be back there still creating it mm-hmm. so he was slightly distant um but he's a lovely guy and i really enjoyed the fact that he's very very honest mm. and he he liked um i mean he comes from a background i'm sure you know this you know he, he's a real geek and he yeah. loves film magazines and he loves gossip and you know <laughs> so he kind of warmed up to that and he really warmed up to empire and and i got on very well with him and that started a relationship that would then blossom down the line mm-hmm. into writing the book. Yeah. Um, so obviously it was a very important day for me. Um, and it was just fantastic. You know, I, I shouldn't yeah. deny the fact I was in Cannes and I went to this wonderful party in this chateau <laughs> up on the hills and they'd had kind of giant bars where you were hobbit-sized when you ordered drinks and <laughs> cave trolls in the bushes and and, and they had Galadriel's boat on the swimming pool. It was just wow. mad, this whole party. And there was no... It was brilliant. It was really Kiwi in sense. There was no VIP lounge. Everyone just kind of mingled. Yeah. And there was kind of stars waltzing this way and that. And it was just a really lovely evening. And that kind of just, I think, just set the tone for both my experience. I think everybody's experience in a way. Yeah. Uh, suddenly we were all on side and we were all really into this. So when did, uh, was it at that screening that, at what point did you, come to the realization or did you think to yourself this is something special this this could be huge well it was definitely the, that footage i think as i said I, I already kind of believed in it to mm-hmm. a certain extent I, I wasn't one of the naysayers probably just more out of you know desperation for it to be brilliant and i think i'd read the the antical news interview that he'd done for shooting and that was very encouraging that uh, he knew you know and, and was very passionate about the material Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't yet know the full scope of the pre-production that had gone on, the various you know, levels of disasters that he had already overcome to get to the yeah. place of actually shooting the film. That wasn't yet quite clear. But it really was, for me, fundamentally, as soon as that footage began playing in that French cinema, it was the same as those memories in, in my imagination. It was the same as the things I'd remembered. You know, that yeah. was exactly the minds of Moria that had been in my head. And that was exactly the Hobbiton that had been in my head. And I don't know how he got it and found it. <laughs> oh, right, there it is. You know, Gandalf looked like Gandalf. It was as simple as that. It wasn't a yeah. kind of like, oh, I didn't quite picture it like that. Yeah. That was it. You know, exactly. And yeah, you know, Jackson's talked about that. He's a lot of that, he says rather humbly, is the fact that he used the Alan Lee and John Howe illustrations, mm. which had been on every copy of the book and right. been everywhere. And I'd got all those calendars. You remember those, yeah. those yearly calendars? We used and they to have. still do those. Yeah. yeah. They're fantastic. So it might be that I was heavily influenced by those images, mm-hmm. as Jackson said. But um, yeah, I was just sort of smitten with the fact that absolutely. And I, I remember really, is it one of the, the only strange thing was that is it the scene where Gandalf meets Bilbo at the door in, in his front garden mm-hmm. and you see the scale for the first time. Yeah. That just took a, a, a few beats to get your head around. Yeah. Because it, it, while it was perfect on the screen, your brain's going, this isn't right. Yeah. Look how small Ian Holm is. He looks completely <laughs> wrong. And you had to kind of get past that. Go, oh, yeah, of course, Hobbit's a little. Yeah. But Ian Holm was the wrong size. It was kind of like, <laughs> that was a bit bizarre. And it took a little bit of kind of effort to get through. But, yeah. of course, 
once you watch the films, you forget that within minutes. Yeah. And for the rest of the trilogy, you just go with the fact that they're small and they're tall and yeah. all of that scale stuff works. Yeah, and it's amazing. I love watching the behind the scenes uh, features where they show that forced perspective and, you know, like the the cart that Frodo and Gandalf are, are riding in is not the shape of a real cart because yeah. Elijah Wood is way far back from Gandalf and they're, you know, he's talking to, you know, talking to thin air over, you know, behind Gandalf to make it look good you know look proper on camera and it's amazing you know the ingenuity that they did to achieve that yeah but what's brilliant is every time uh, i subsequently went on set and i've been on set of the hobbits uh every time i've been on set and they've done a gandalf scene it's ian mckellen standing on a box and i think <laughs> of all the millions of dollars they spent on these films and all the ingenuity and digital effects at work every time i've gone on it's ian mckellen standing at a box and a camera sort of over his shoulder <laughs> looking down on who he's talking to the, like, brilliant the oldest tricks still work. yeah the bo the box will never be replaced we, we can't <laughs> we can't make uh improvements upon a box i guess Not a box. <laughs> can't beat a box um so you mentioned something earlier um and this is just um a thought on you know the film industry as a whole you mentioned you know back then um you know you at you guys at empire were very much on the side of the films you know um you you wanted films to succeed um do you feel like that has changed a bit in you know our our it seems like um i don't know whether it's the films or just our society as a whole i i I feel like, uh, you know, from a movie watcher perspective, I hear a lot more negative than positive when it comes to to films. It almost seems like, uh, you know, there's a a decent chunk of people that that would rather, um, you know, see things fail, I guess, um, you know, or they, they look to pick apart things yeah. more. Yeah. And uh, I think as a, as a Tolkien fan, I saw that more, you know, when the Hobbit trilogy came out, it just seemed like, you know, it got really nitpicky really quick. Um, and I wondered if that if that was something that you've seen in in your industry. I think I don't think it's a new thing. Um, mm. But what I think did change, and this is one of the I, hopefully you'll detect it as the book goes on. The, the smaller themes I tried to pick up on was as Lord of the Rings was being made, effectively film coverage on the internet was being invented mm. and amplified, yeah. and that whole idea of following a project almost beat by beat, day by day. Yeah. It was sort of invented by Lord of the Rings more than anything. But it began as a very positive thing, the OneRing.net and all those guys, you know, mm -hmm. really, I think, was, was supporting. And, and Jackson was very brilliant at having the fans on board very quickly. Mm -hmm. He understood them. He thought like them. He was kind of a fan himself. Absolutely. So instead of sort of banishing them, you know, as, yeah. as the startled New Line publicists would have done, and they were all like, <laughs> you know, lock them out. He said, no, bring, bring them in. Yeah. Give them a little bit keep you know keep them fed and then they'll be <laughs> on side and he was exactly right he yeah you know, he, he nurtured relationships you know ain't cool news and the one ring and, and with empire mm -hmm. along the way and and that i think he, he was brilliant at but i think the truth of it is is that you know within hollywood and when the media that covers hollywood the negativity goes back decades i mean you mm. follow anything that happened to francis ford coppola on apocalypse now mm. and yeah. you know he was declared insane by by, by <laughs> right. hollywood it, it, you know, he'd gone up river and gone completely out of control yeah. heaven's gate there was always this kind of legacy of the way film you know is covered i think what had changed and what is, is so obvious now is 
how available it is to us. Mm. We don't have to wait for a newspaper or a television show or, or a radio show. We can, we get it every morning in our That's inboxes, yeah, uh, the stories of what's gone wrong, what's gone right. I mean, I've, I've been fascinated by the kind of, the, the, the kind of spin around Zack Snyder. The mm. fact that Zack Snyder had been declared, you know, the destroyer of DC, mm -hmm. the, the yeah. worst thing that ever happened to this. You know, he was criminal number one, you know, for right. what he was done. And then this kind of, this kind of, this kind of revolved to the point yeah. where Joss Whedon has been cast out of Eden. And now Jack Snyder is the, you know, the, the welcome, the hero returning. Yeah. And praise, you know, <laughs> the Snyder Cup, give him four hours and he's, he's a great man and he's right. great work. You know, it's just mad. Um, yeah. And so yeah, it is a crazy world, uh, um, but I think you're right in the sense, I, I think what happened subsequently of Roar of the Rings and into many other films was there was this kind of intense focus mm -hmm. on what was going on. And an industry was invented around it. Websites that yeah. run on this stuff was invented. And of course they need to be fed and they need to mm -hmm. keep supplying news or they'll die. Yeah. So I think what, you know, the interesting change that happened with The Hobbit was that you know these websites were now existing and very big mm. businesses as opposed to the kind of the, the rather kind of humble right uh, fan beginnings things yeah. beginnings during Lord of the Rings, so it was much more wary and watchful of mm. of what the Hobbit was doing and you know and of course there was that whole period when you know once you built Jackson up and give him all these Oscars and sort of deify him for doing the impossible, it's time to bring him down again right. the Hobbit and all the kind of the troubles that went with the Hobbit were kind of almost doubly amplified because of mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. Now you mentioned uh, Zack Snyder. I actually did have on my list to to bring that up because I think it's a very interesting uh, arc. Like you said, um, you know, he was kind of banished from DC. Like, oh, you know, DC's destroyed. Now he's he's back as the savior of DC. Um, and for uh, for the record, so today, as we're filming this, uh, is the release day of the Snyder Cut. So um, it's kind of appropriate for us to, to touch on this. Um, so do you think this, uh, this kind of um, concept, you know, obviously we had the Joss Whedon uh, version of Justice League. And, you know, just from a kind of a kind of grew, you know, fueled by Zach, but then also fueled by this grassroots, you know, fan uh, drive to get this cut released. Do you think there's any chance that, you know, studios look at this and say, you know, maybe in some instances we've gotten too involved on the creative side and pushed our will on the directors um, and, and take a step back. I think a, another example, you know, a, a director that you've covered Ridley Scott. Um, I absolutely love the director's cut of kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the greatest examples of this where, you know, the studio just kind of deemed it needed to be hacked and, you know, subplots taken out. And so there's a night and day difference between the director's cut in my mind of kingdom of heaven with the theatrical. Um, do you think this, you know, the Snyder cut phenomenon is just a one-off or do you think, you know, there's a chance for this to have a reverberating effect in the industry? Uh, I don't think it's one of them. I mean, if it's a success and the amount of publicity it's got, I'm sure mm -hmm. we'll make it a success. Even though people in four hours is a lot of time yeah. to give up to it. Um, I think there will be a change. I, I think you have to bear in mind with, with situations like Kingdom of Heaven and even the original theatrical cuts of, of Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. 
which obviously is so different from the extended cuts, mm-hmm. uh, there's always a precedent and a necessity about the time you have to edit, mm-hmm. the amount of uh, commercial space that can be given by a cinema to a length of film, and mm-hmm. what are the, the consequences upon box office totals that's got yeah. to be borne in mind. Um, and so I think studios will always operate uh, around those lines. But what's right. changing is, is a sort of paradigm shift in culture in terms of we're much more ready to watch things on a small screen now and much mm-hmm. more willing to, yeah. partly because of the pandemic and partly yeah. because uh, cinema has sort of been sort of ebbing a little bit over mm-hmm. the last probably five or six years. Yeah. I think the pandemic kind of just sped it up. Like it it was kind of already heading that direction and the pandemic just kicked it into gear. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The pandemic is kind of catalyst for the Netflix sort of Mm -hmm. attitude. And there's, it's been this strange thing, hasn't there about um, sort of strong narrative storytelling has sort of shifted out of cinemas and into, into box sets, as they call them, it's this terminology, but you know, extended the television series that are done like movie arcs in the sense yeah. they are one story rather than endlessly repeating the same story. Mm-hmm. And that's changed attitudes, I think, towards the long cut and the long version. Yeah. Um, so I think we will see not only um, more directorial driven cuts of, of feature mm-hmm. films, it's likely we will see sort of cinema versions, then three hour, four hour versions, mm. you know, because people like, seem to like this long thing. You know, will we see yeah. this? Apparently it's a four hour cut of 1492, Ridley Scott's mm. Columbus film, which I yeah. really like is Columbus film. And it was kind of derided at the time, but that might appear on HBO at some point. Mm. I mean, what's to lose? You can run it as a mini series. Right. Um, I, I think that the worry for me would be that there is an art in the film format. Mm-hmm. that's different to television and yeah. different that you know the two-hour film is kind of an art mm-hmm. and we don't want to lose that yeah or even the 90-minute film that's right. kind of required so you know yes i think there's a huge shift going on i'd be interested to see what happens with with uh the Zack snyder justice league and uh, the, what that happened you know it's interesting that you look at what Marvel are doing, and if you take Marvel to one gigantic story mm-hmm. with many different sort of facets, they're now doing yeah. bits as television series that fold straight back into films, that fold yeah. back out into TV series. I mean, it's dizzying to yeah. sort of get hold of. But they're saying, well, it doesn't matter. We can do this. We can yeah. dance between formats, and audiences will just go with this. So yeah. changing world. Yeah. Uh, um, going back to, you know, Peter Jackson and kind of the, the beginnings of uh, the Lord of the Rings, um, you know, in, in retrospect, as we look at more current blockbusters like the Marvel series, um, you know, it it's kind of makes it even more astonishing that, you know, Peter Jackson, while I think he had an Oscar nomination at that point, um, he was still, you know, as far as worldwide audience, you know, he, he wasn't a, a household name by any means at that point, you know, fairly, uh, fairly unknown director. And the idea that he was given a property as big as the Lord of the Rings. And, you know, uh, I'm sure there was some studio, uh, you know, uh, input here and there, but by and large, he was kind of given creative reins. And, you know, you look at something like Marvel, they kind of bring people in, but they're working underneath a, you know, Kevin Feige and the studio kind of has their, you know, obviously they've had some directors leave for creative differences and stuff like that. Yeah. But it seems like they've kind of have their finger on everything. Whereas, you know, it seems like uh, 
from an outside perspective that Peter Jackson was kind of given the reins of Lord of the Rings. Um, and it, it's kind of just another example of how this all came together so uh, miraculously almost. Yes, it's true. I think there are a number of factors in that. One is that New Line and Bob Shea, who was really the kind of creative head of New Line, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Lyme was sort of the financial bit of it. Then they were the two heads of the firm. Uh, Bob Shea was more distant than like a Harvey Weinstein or even a Kevin Feige. Mm -hmm. He ran the whole company and you know, he, he sort of kept off things. I think they monitored the bottom line. They monitored casting very closely. And there was a lot of discussion around the final cuts and the length mm -hmm. of things. There was quite a lot of arguing around those. And, and there were occasional fracas that broke mm -hmm. out. Uh, I think around special effects early on, there was a great deal of worry from New Line's side that Weta weren't up to it. And there was a bit mm -hmm. of, you know, they kind of brought in Joe Terry and they brought in a lot of people who sort of from ILM to kind of bring a bit of experience to, to Weta mm -hmm. to kind of get it on, a, on an even playing field. Um, but beyond those, uh, Jackson was uh, relatively less alone. I think mm -hmm. they didn't really understand the book, <laughs> particularly. <laughs> I don't know whether they read it or not, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, it confused them. Mm -hmm. So I think a little bit was like, okay, <laughs> yeah, let them Just, go and do the yeah. thing. <laughs> and the other big thing was they were in New Zealand, mm -hmm. you know, the other end of the world. Yeah, yeah half, half of Hollywood couldn't find New Zealand on a map. So they were miles away and all everything was in New Zealand. It wasn't just they were mm -hmm. going to do the exteriors in New Zealand. They were going to shoot yeah. they had a studio in New Zealand. They had the special effects people. They had the practical effects people. It was all there set up in yeah. New Zealand. And like a little autonomous kingdom that Jackson mm -hmm. had built um, around Lord of the Rings. So you know, they were kind of self-sufficient mm -hmm. in a way. And they didn't need to go back to, to L.A., and to, to close to new lines, it's a geographical thing. Yeah, and, and that's a and, long flight. Yeah. If you wanted to go check on the production, you got to get on a twenty-hour plane flight or something. Yeah, I think, and I may be wrong, but I think Bob Shea and Michael Lyon only visited twice hmm. in the entire year and production. a half initial production, and then hmm. three years of post-production. Um, so they they did you know keep their distance. Hmm. The other great advantage was Michael Desky who was put on as executive producer. And really, he was the go-between between, between Newline and Peter Jackson. Michael Desky was both a great friend of Peter Jackson's and a huge fan of Peter Jackson's, and also a huge fan of the book, you know, an absolute acolyte of, of, of Tolkien's world. You know, so he was, you know, honestly the heartbeat of, I think, getting this, this kind of um, translation between what was going on in, in New Zealand and what was going on in L.A., and he was relaying the news to Bob Shea. And then mm -hmm. way he, what he was doing was keeping Bob Shea away from the production. <laughs> he was going, it's great. You know, and they, were, they were looking at footage. You know, they yeah. were seeing the stuff. Um, and they could see that it was good quality. Um, mm -hmm. Jackson talks very much about the moment when he kind of had them, the, Michael Lyon and Bob Shea, they'd come over for a visit and they toured the sets and they toured Wetter and done the thing. And they'd spoken to the cast and, they finally got shown some footage and there was no special effects yet done. It was mm -hmm. far too early for that. Um, but he showed them as part of this sort of montage of stuff that Michael Lane saw, uh, Bob Shea and Michael Lane saw, was the death of Boromir. Mm. And he said, he, Jackson said, as they came out, he saw tears mm. in their eyes. He thought, I've got them. You know? Yeah. And he said, and that's when Michael Lane, I think he said, turned to him and said, it's a drama. 
<laughs> like, well, what do you expect? Of course, it's a drama. But I think they were thinking Conan the Barbarian. They were thinking ah, yeah. it's it's a kind of Star Warsy, you know, mm-hmm. kind of mentality, or that the film would have nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But Jackson was making David Lean. You know, he was making something serious and epic. Yeah. He was treating it like it was, you know, a, a big thing and a big drama. And I think that woke them up a little bit. They were like, mm-hmm. "This acting going on in these films, this performances. Oh my god! <laughs> we should make everybody stop. You know, call yeah. the publicists." And, yeah. and that kind of, I think that started the ball rolling to the can footage being shown mm. because they realised there was something to boast about to the world. Yeah. yeah, and you know the the fact that you know that it's I think to to date it's still the only fantasy film to win Best Picture, Return of the King. And uh, like you said, you know, they kind of thought they had a Conan the Barbarian kind of thing. And then and, you know, you see after, you know, obviously after the films are released, you're now thinking, oh, hey, Oscars now. (laughs) Yeah, there was a huge uh, the shift happened in terms of Oscars. And obviously, if you work in the studio in in Hollywood and it's a very incestuous sort of world, Mm -hmm. the Oscars are enormous. Yeah, they are the credit system of right. of of Hollywood. Yeah, you know, you can make loads of money, and that's brilliant, and that's what you're there for. But to win Oscars elevates you, and mm-hmm. and of course, New Line had never had Oscars. They had a fine line; they had a bits and pieces. I think mm-hmm. with Paul Thomas Anderson stuff, and there've been a few sort of screenplay awards. Yeah, but not on, on that level. Um, and it began with with Fellowship, mm-hmm. and the nominations that Fellowship got. And Michael Desi is very good on that because they hadn't really campaigned on for fellowship very hard because they didn't have faith that the Academy would care. Yeah. I mean, the film had been, a, been superbly well reviewed and become a huge hit. So they were in a good place. But well, Desi said they had no concept that the Academy were going to pay attention. And he said they kind of thought we'll get some you know, special effects things, some cinematography right. things, maybe you know, that side of it, the technical awards. But That's they what got, they give the fantasy movies, yeah. <laughs> the technical stuff. <laughs> well done, you guys. You know, you've created, you know, this wonderful world and it's all brilliant. But, you know, it's not serious films, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and as well, you said, it was kind of, it's, you know, getting Ian McKellen mm-hmm. you know, for supporting out to that nomination. He said it was, was real kind of, you know, cracking the, uh, the, yeah. the glass ceiling. And then the, the kind of best picture nomination for Fellowship, that changed everything. He said, mm. you know, obviously they were fully behind um what was going on by that point mm-hmm. but he said once all that happened with fellowship the money started getting freed up to to finish two towers and return of the king properly yeah. Yeah, that really let jackson loose you know yeah. right we're getting a huge hit and we're getting oscar attention so it really refocused and of course by return of the king the entire company was focused on getting those awards and then absolutely you know, the final hurdle passed yeah. And so after after Fellowship comes out, um, they they get like you said, they get more money uh, to do um, Two Towers, Return of the King um, from your your perspective and your your time talking with Peter Jackson. How did that affect, um, you know, the the production as a whole or, you know, obviously their their approach probably didn't change much aside from now they you know, they could probably do some things that they might not have been able to do before. Yeah, it, I think, uh, I think obviously having more money 
and mm-hmm. uh, built up a, a more kind of facility in, in New mm-hmm. Zealand and greater, I mean, greater processing power, if nothing else, at, at Weta Digital. Yeah. You know, they went from just sort of a few mainframes that tended to get crashed if they got too hot, <laughs> you know, to uh, the point, I think, uh, I visited on, on Return of the King and on Two Towers. Uh, they did these kind of large supplementary shoots. Um, I visited both. And by the time of Return of the King, they had the largest processing power in the Southern Hemisphere was in mm. Weta, you wow. know, in this suburb of Wellington in New Zealand, this kind of tiny little place. So they, cause that was kind of a huge uh, upward trajectory. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, they always had ambition, but they never, you know, Jackson's face, with they, they would find a way mm-hmm. and they would work out how to do things. And they were figuring out how to do the battles using this software called Massive, right. involving lots of independently sort of brained uh, little yeah. soldiers and had their own yeah. minds. And there's great stuff on the, on the DVDs all about that. Absolutely. But obviously I think... Um, Beyond obviously the narrative expansions and the chance to go back and reshoot things with these huge extra shooting, mm-hmm. it was Gollum, I think, that yeah. was the thing that the money went into. Um, because at the time of right up to the release of Fellowship of the Ring, I think um, New Line were convinced it was going to have to go to ILM to do because mm. Weta weren't capable. Yeah. You know? And Jackson just wouldn't listen to that. Yeah. He said, <laughs> no, we're going to do Gollum. We have to do Gollum. Yeah. But he didn't know how they were going to do Gollum. They sort of had a vague idea at the beginning that it was going to be a sort of keyframe animation with mm-hmm. Andy Serkis hired to do the voice. And then obviously mm-hmm. it's a very famous story, but Andy Serkis came in to do the audition in London and you know had read up on the book and then developed the voice, you know, based yeah. on his cat and all sorts of different things. And when he did the audition for this voice part, he started clambering over the furniture and sort of ripping his shirt <laughs> off. And it was just incredible. <laughs> and he kind of left in a flurry and Fran Walsh, she was in the audition, sort of turned to Peter Jackson and goes, we've got to get him on the set. You know, yeah. we, we need that energy on the set. Yeah. And that's, that was the kind of the, the stone that began the kind of rockfall that created Gollum. Because they started thinking about motion capture as a serious mm-hmm. way of doing it. And, but honestly, they did not know how it was going to work. So it was like a science experiment that just grew and grew and grew. And I think that's the key place where the faith that Fellowship of the Ring had created in the project mm. was focused in terms of certainly two towers was mm-hmm. making Gollum work. Yeah. Cause you think about it. It's like, even after the Fellowship of the Ring, if Gollum doesn't work, if he's a, he's a mess. Yeah. You, the whole thing kind of collapses because right. he's, he's, he's a, he's a pivotal character. Mm-hmm. In some ways he's the most important character in the whole story. Yeah. You know, he's the most interesting character in the whole story because, you know, he's, he's ambiguous. Yeah. He's sort of a, so he's, he's one of Tolkien's most inspired creations. You can't avoid him, but you know, if it didn't work, we'd be laughing at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It'd be Jar Jar Binks all over again. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. So they were taking a huge risk. And I think that was the great example of New Line's faith and investment. Mm-hmm. And then the sheer extraordinary thinking that was going on at, in, in, in New Zealand, you know, from Jackson, from Fran Walsh, Mandy Circus, from all the brilliant people at, at Weta mm-hmm. who figured out you know, how to do this. And, and it, that story alone is the evolution of that character and the technology yeah. by the reshoots or the supplementary shoots on Return of the King. They could do and they could shoot Andy actually out in, in the wilds and then capture mm-hmm. him you know, on location. That, that's yeah. A, yeah. And if you think about the effect of that on the industry, Mm-hmm. No Gollum, no Avatar, oh yeah. all those things. You know, half of the things that go on in the Marvel films, mm-hmm. all was invented 
by that audition in London. Yeah. And his circus went a bit crazy on them. Yeah. And they went, we've got to have him on set. You know, it's it's small things and, and huge effect. Yeah. And even the, I mean, just the films that Andy has since gone on to do, I think of, you know, the Planet of the Apes series has some of the most amazing, you know, uh, performances by CG characters, you know, obviously uh, spearheaded by Andy himself. Um, one of my favorite uh, stories, I, th I think it's on the uh, appendices on the DVDs. Um, it's just one of those things that the timing, you know, things just clicked. I remember them talking about um, attempting to make the Balrog and they were trying to figure out how they're going to do the flames. And so they're, they're filming flames on a, a black backdrop and trying to, you know, try to compose that with the, the footage. And then while they're in production of fellowship of the ring, someone creates CG fire for the first time. And uh, like, I think, I think it was somewhere else, somewhere not in, yeah. in Weta necessarily, but someone had created it. So now they had, access to cg fire and it just kind of clicked into place you know at the right time yeah i think the, the timing of lord of the rings is you know, so many levels is is so fortuitous mm -hmm. so not only you know is it the emergence of this, this incredible talent in new, in new zealand it's the point where certain things and jackson kind of foresaw this that the special effects are caught up with tolkien mm -hmm. they hadn't quite as, as you're saying that they were almost there yeah. And he had to have faith that they would keep going. I mean, they didn't really quite know how to do water. Mm. You know, the great, the, the river, you know, you know, the scene with Liv Tyler and the kind yeah. of ride getting washed away. That had to be done in the States, obviously, by digital domain. Ah, they yeah. had figured out how to do water effects. Yeah. And obviously fire had been sort of discovered. And all these these leaps and bounds were going on during production. Yeah, I, I, you know, all films find a way of achieving their stories and they yeah. are all films are kind of battles to kind of figure out and make the story work on screen mm -hmm. but there is incredible kind of fortune that jackson was blessed with or earned in many ways he earned this fortune and that these things would come around yeah I mean, massive the story of massive software is the legacy of that is just so huge yeah in terms of where it came from and you know ai software and experiments fast completely outside of film mm -hmm. and then the fact that it was adopted and they realized suddenly what they could do yeah and of course now they use massive to grow whole planets in right film. yeah it's an <laughs> astonishing piece of piece of software yeah and, and uh one of the the amazing thing you know i always think when, when i rewatch yeah. lord of the rings is how well all that those effects hold up after 20 years you know those it's been 20 years since fellowship came out and I was just watching the two towers the other day and I'm sitting there, you know, watching Gollum and, you know, obviously there's some differences between him in terms of, uh, you know, how he looks in, in the Hobbit, he looks a little more polished, I guess you could say in the Hobbit, but I mean, by and large for a 20 year old movie, it holds up extremely well in terms of the effects. It does. It does. I, I know Jackson can't really look at them. He, he's, <laughs> he's only revisited the films once. This mm -hmm. is amazing. When Guillermo del Toro was on The Hobbit and mm -hmm. they watched them together. Uh, they put them on a big cinema screen, but he's never watched them again. Um, he can't face it. He'll look at things and go, yeah, no, 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 that, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. He'll see things that we, we can't see. Micro things. Um, I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that they use New Zealand so well, mm -hmm. and you can't, you know, a landscape can't age you know, mm -hmm. in terms of the context of the film. Yeah. That will always look fresh and, and, and brilliant. And to a certain extent, they didn't overplay the special effects hand. Yeah. 
they they used it very they marshaled it very very cleverly mm-hmm. and you know, they used you know, the idea of kind of golem you shoot him at night mm-hmm. much more than you shoot him a day certainly during right. two towers which is a skillful use of the fact that you know, it's very hard to do those kind of special effects in daylight mm-hmm. it's much easier to do them at night right so it stays good and of course you know it's about storytelling mm-hmm. and if storytelling is so strong and so yeah. well done we don't stop to go, oh, does that character fit in the landscape properly? Is right. it being rendered as well as it could be these days? Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm with you. I, I look at all those, the Uruk-hai arriving at Helm's mm. Deep. Mm-hmm. And I can't see a, a fault in that. It's just an right. astonishing sequence. Yeah. The kind of army moving up, the way it's edited and put together. And you just don't even think it's a special effect. You're not even, yeah. your brain's not doing that. It's going, wow. Yeah. So it's it does live 20 years. It's amazing. Yeah. And when I, you know, I, I think back to here a few months ago when I was uh, reviewing the 4K editions that came out and I I sit down to watch the films and I'm like, okay, I'm going to pay really close attention to the details and, you know, so I can review this and it would without fail, you know, I'd get about 20 minutes in and I'd just be sucked in and then. You know, an hour hour later, it's like, oh, uh, yeah, I was supposed to be, you know, watching over this with a fine tooth comb. But like, you're totally dead on. You know, the storytelling is so good and so captivating that you know your your mind doesn't wander to to look at look for you know cracks in the uh, in the effects or anything like that. No, I think that they realized that almost within the shoot. I mean, the, the scale thing we were talking about at the beginning, and they'd 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 worked so hard to to try and get that to work and figure that out. And Jackson said most of the time, once they were well into the shoot, it didn't matter so much. Mm-hmm. You could shoot someone on a box and put the camera over their shoulder, or put the hobbits further up a, a, an incline, and you know the great scene between Frodo and and Boromir when he tries to mm-hmm. get a ring from him. There's no scale effects in that that sequence. It's just. Yeah. You know, Elijah Wood's further up the hill. Perspective, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's, you know, the thing is, that in our heads, they're already small. So right. we don't, we stop sort of looking for it because yeah. we're already thinking they're small. Yeah. So he gets away with things. After all, he didn't need to, to spend all this money with digital effects. And it was much harder on The Hobbit when you've got all the dwarves constantly mm-hmm. and you have scenes with Gandalf. That's trickier. And it yeah. was much harder to get around. So they had to kind of, use a lot more digital apparatus mm-hmm. to do that. But in terms of, of, of rings, I think they just realized that and have confidence in the fact that we're with it. We're with mm-hmm. the film. Obviously they had bigger sets and smaller sets and all those things that helped them out, you know, especially with, with Hobbiton, but you go with it. You, yeah. you don't question it. Yeah. I, I, I love, so to, to go a little bit forward. So we've, we've kind of talked about through, um, you know, after fellowship of the ring, two towers, um, one of the the things that I love about Lord of the Rings and why it's such a great trilogy is, um, you know, by I I had read um, by the time Return of the King was getting ready to come out, I had caught up. I was introduced by the films. I had caught up and read everything up to Return of the King, and so that was the film I went into with the most expectations. And I felt like, um, you know, going in like, oh, I hope they stick the landing, you know. And, uh, you know, they, everything's boiled down to this this last film. And, uh, you know, we, we oftentimes, you know, the the debate among movie buffs is, um, you know, name sequels, you know, the second film that's better than the first film. And everyone throws out, you know, Empire Strikes Back, Godfather Part Two. Um, but I think it's even more rare when you have a third film and all three are 
such great caliber and so close in excellence. Um, so I, yeah, I, f I felt like they absolutely nailed the landing on that one. Yeah, I think they had advantages in, in a sense. They had the books, they already mm -hmm. existed, and right. it yeah. was there for them in, in the sense that Godfather Part Two and Empire had to invent right. those stories yeah. off the back of the originals, and as That's did like, Terminator 2 and Aliens, you know, the other great examples. There was that ingenious and, and inspired idea of shooting them as much as they could all together. Mm -hmm. So you shoot it as one film. Yeah. So that the tone and, and feel and, and experience for all the actors and and crew. Sorry, I'm moving out of camera there. Um, <laughs> was uh, you know was as one. You know, mm -hmm. so there was a kind of real kind of uniformity to, to what they were doing. But I, what I like is the different feel between the, the three films. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they are one story, and right. and it's that feeling like when you finally when you watch you know you get to the end of Return of the King, you no longer see three films. You only feel one. Mm -hmm. big story it kind of joins it all together yeah but i like the fact they have different styles to them mm -hmm. the first one is slightly more of a fairy tale it has slightly mm -hmm. more enchanted feel it's to do with the fact that it's a bit more elvish in terms yeah. of the journey they go on and it's much yeah. more antiquity the second one is the western yeah mm -hmm. and the battle movie and it has the kind of the, the kind of robust landscapes and it's, mm -hmm. it's much more rugged it's yeah. much more rocks and you know it widens if anything and the third one is just, it's, it's all exposition. You know, Jackson said, yeah, he said, I've done all two films of pure setup. And now all I've got to do is three hours of, of complete you know, <laughs> exposition and yeah. you know, complete kind of delivery. Yeah. And Stuff just happens left and right. <laughs> bang, 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 completion. You don't have to worry about building up characters and, and those right. things. We know who these people are yeah. by now. And you just do it. And he was, he was so confident in terms of the edit, I think, by the third film. That he knew what his what his story was, you know. I, I always think about the, the great choices in, in Return of the King. That shows you a director in command of the mm -hmm. material was opening with Andy Serkis, you mm. know, opening small, you know, yeah, yeah, tiny intimate scene about where the ring had come from, and that had been a really incidental sequence they were going to put into Two Towers at some point, right. but never found room for it, and it kind of dangled until Jackson said to Fran Walsh, "Let's put it at the front." Of, of Return of the King. And if you look at the, the three openings of the three films, they're all memories. Right. They're all flashbacks. Yeah. You know, one is the great history, the prologue, prologue flashback yeah. to where the, the ring came from. The second one is Frodo remembering the death of Gandalf and flashing mm. back to yeah. the, the first film. And then the third film is the flashback to, to Gollum's story and, mm -hmm. you know, how he changed. We saw Andy Serkis's face, you know, finally, yeah. <laughs> not digital. Um, and the other great, fantastic sequence for me where i just thought you know jackson you are your hands on completely in control of your material was the lighting of the beacons i think uh, you have that kind of build up and then yeah. you have this kind of just you know it's just the camera is bounding across the world mm -hmm. yeah you know, in, in a one montage he travels you know i don't know what 500 miles or more right. across yeah. this world because that's what he can do now this yeah. is such his playground. <laughs> this camera can go bounce from mountain to mountain and goes from one character, Pippin, right the way to, to Aragorn. Right. And I thought, bravo, you yeah. know, you are now you're completely in command. And from then on, it's 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 just glorious, isn't it? It's just a spectacle after spectacle. And he's yeah. showing off. By the time the elephants are kind of <laughs> the elephants are charging, you're just showing oh my off. Gosh. Now. Yeah. 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 With the the way the camera you know tracks behind the Rohirrim and you're gradually getting closer and closer to the Oliphants. Yeah. It's, 
that and you know like you said with the beacons it's like this is jackson's show and we're just along for the ride and yeah i just remember you know moment after moment uh in return of the king especially just thinking oh my god this is amazing <laughs> And he never loses the intimacy. I think the great quality of the films yeah. is that the small moments always mm -hmm. count. It's something Philippa Boyens always talked about is that you have to earn your action beats. You have to earn mm -hmm. your big moments, your big scenes. And if you don't earn them, they're cheap, mm -hmm. which a lot of action movies never understand. Right. Yeah. We have to know what's at stake every time you go into a battle, every time you mm -hmm. reach a crescendo. So we have to go through those scenes with Sam and Frodo. We have to go through yeah. the kind of claustrophobia of certain sequence. We have to have the parting of Merry and Pippin, you know, and the wrenching yeah. of that yeah. to earn, you know, all the stuff that was supposed to come. Comes after, yeah. Yeah, we have to go on um, Eowyn's journey with mm -hmm. her to earn the moment when she kills the Witch King. Right. To, and all I think, yeah. that's great screenwriting. You know, that's, mm -hmm. They're figuring out that you can't just land on these signature moments mm -hmm. without the audience having been prepared for them to know yeah. what the characters are going through and you know that's what proper films do you know you earn yeah. this stuff rather than just deliver it yeah and it's it's one of the things i i love about the lord of the rings films is um you know there's there's moments in there obviously that are um not obviously from tolkien um one of the my absolute favorite moments of the film is not in the books and that's when gandalf and pippin are talking about death in Minas Tirith. And like you said, it's those small character moments, you know, we're in the midst of this huge epic battle. And then you have this moment that is just, in my mind, it's just pure gold. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's an understanding. And I think a lot of that comes from, from Frau Mosh and Philippa Boyens. And Jackson yeah. would say so. Uh, the, the thematic understanding of material that mm -hmm. the book in a way and the whole world of, of Middle Earth was a response to Tolkien's experiences in the First World War and the death of, of friends and, mm -hmm. you know, having gone through that extraordinary experience and been transformed by it. Mm -hmm. I think he, he imbued uh, all his writing on in middle earth with the sense of that. And yeah. uh, as many great uh, Tolkien sort of scholars have said, you know, the great theme of the book is death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's fundamentally what it's about. You know, the, the undying lands is the afterlife. It's, mm -hmm. it's about cost and death and, you know, sacrifice and they never lose sight of that, you know, as, as mm -hmm. filmmakers, they, they understood that. I mean, Jackson is a great scholar of World War One. I, I think he really took that on board. And Boyens, of course, who's a, who's a huge, has a huge knowledge of Tolkien. Right. She was the one who'd read the biographies and read the, the academic works and sort of kept saying to them, you know, we've got to, we've got to have this stuff. We've got to understand mm -hmm. this stuff that the relationship between Frodo and Sam is a relationship between a, a captain and his servant in, in World War One. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about cross cross-class relationships so yeah, yeah it, it, it's, it's it's a subtext but it's there and as you're saying that great moment with Gandalf and, and Pippin is about confronting death and mm -hmm. you know being able to do that and that I think goes back to to, to Tolkien yeah so um so we've got Return of the King so um Return of the Kings come out and then we have this big gap before we start on the Hobbit and you go into this in the book. So we don't have to get into the weeds on it, but yeah. basically the, the rights to the Hobbit were an absolute mess. One, one uh, company owned the distribution rights, another, the production rights, um, which, yeah. And it's, it's a miracle, honestly, that they even got it figured out. I remember, you know, 
being on pins and needles for years, <laughs> which is a yes. long time to be on pins and needles, <laughs> um, waiting, you know, news trickling out. It's like, okay, yes, we're going to make it. Okay. You know, Guillermo del Toro is going to direct it. No, he's not. Now Peter Jackson's going to direct it. Um, so the Hobbit was, you know, a whole different beast in and of itself, obviously, you know, coming after Lord of the Rings, the massive, massive success there, the expectations are sky high. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of background uh, rights issues going on um, leading up to that. It's, 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 it was one of the hardest things to try and figure out in doing all of, of my book was mm -hmm. quite why The Hobbit rights were so tangled up. <laughs> and I, 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 without actually seeing original documents, I kind of figured out as far as I could that it all went back to United Artists mm -hmm. owning getting the rights from Tolkien and being unable to figure out a way of making Lord of the Rings and United Artists then being in a very difficult position, being bought out by MGM and everything mm -hmm. that was kind of tangled up with United Artists went to MGM. And there was a point when Bakshi was going to do, was trying to do Lord of the Rings with United Artists mm -hmm. and they gave up on him yeah. and sent literally, they were all in the same building as MGM. They were literally physically down the corridor and he was sent down the corridor to MGM, who then bought, who then in that moment, I think, got the rights to distribute both a version of The Hobbit and version of Lord of the Rings. It was, it was so complicated. Yeah. And in the end, Lord of the Rings kind of went back to, uh, eventually was bought out by Saul Zanz. Right. But the, 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 but he didn't buy The Hobbit bit of distribution. That kind of got left behind mm -hmm. in this sort of mix of United Artists and MGM. <laughs> Everything else went with Zantz. It was kind of, you know, it feels to me like there was a lawyer who hadn't quite checked all the paragraphs <laughs> properly somewhere way back. So when it came to it, as you say, there was this Warner and New Line obviously had been absorbed into Warner. Uh, they had the right to make a version of The Hobbit, mm -hmm. but could not legally distribute it because right. MGM retained the right to distribute The Hobbit. Even though MGM had, had nothing to do with Lord of the Rings yeah. and uh, very little to do with anything else. They just had this thing. And of course, MGM were in really bad financial trouble at that time. Mm -hmm. So weren't willing to, to sell this thing. It was one of the things that was keeping them solvent was the <laughs> fact they could distribute The Hobbit. Yeah. And this dragged the whole thing into, into a mire. There were, kind of, there were some uh, weird places it all went to. There was the whole period when Jackson and his management grew concerned they hadn't been paid all the money that was due to them by right. New Line, mm -hmm. which was a hindrance. And that broke down relationships between Jackson and Bob Shea. Mm -hmm. So at which point I think Jackson almost let it go and said, yeah, okay, I'm going to go off and do my own films, King Kong. Mm -hmm. and, King Kong yeah. and and there was a talk at that point where I think Bob Shea tried with, with uh, New Line to get a version going with Sam Raimi directing The Hobbit. Oh, yeah. That kind of forgot about around, that. Yeah, yeah. That hovered around for a little bit. Then um, there were some very wise people, Ken Caymans being one of them, Jackson's manager, the then head of MGM, mm. who wasn't willing to let the Sam Raimi version happen because <laughs> he wanted Peter Jackson to do it. And he yeah. called up Jackson's management and said, what the mess? Yeah. And th said they found out about this breakdown and uh, a phone call was had between Bob Shea and Peter Jackson and, and things were healed. And then, you know, and gradually, and this took so long, but yeah. it was, in the end, it was just about money. Mm. And it was money in terms of MGM being able to financially mm -hmm. distribute the film on some yeah. level. You know, they had the right to, but could, did they have mm -hmm. the infrastructure? 
Yeah. Because they were going through bankruptcy around that time. Yeah. Yeah. And it was whether MGM were even going to exist. And right. I imagine kind of some of those people at Warner Brothers, who are obviously a very successful company, were kind of hovering around thinking, well, if MGM does go under, can we buy the rights to right. distribute it back from the courts? Can we yeah. steal that out of it? But they weren't <laughs> quite that, that, that kind of ailing MGM. So that's why it just took so long. And they mm -hmm. got to a point where MGM were keen. They just needed to sort out some last bits of their problems. Mm -hmm. And Warner Brothers put pre-production together. And that's where the whole Guillermo del Toro era began. And Jackson was only going to produce. And various scripts were written at that stage. And a lot of money was spent. Um, mm -hmm. I think upwards of $60 million yeah. was spent developing The Hobbit for Guillermo del Toro. Mm -hmm. And with Jackson producing by Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers spent all that money. And yeah. one of the reasons why Jackson in the end... I think rather reluctantly went into The Hobbit mm -hmm. was that Warner Brothers was saying, we're going to shut the whole thing down. Yeah. We can't lose any more money on this. Mm -hmm. this, you know, this is becoming a, a turkey. Yeah, You've got to direct it. It was a, an offer he couldn't refuse to put it right. in Godfather parlance. You know. <laughs> and he had all the people in, in New Zealand, you know, under West Digital, at, or you know, at a workshop, all the crew that he was going to put together to shoot these films, thousands of people now mm -hmm. who needed a job. Yeah. And I think Jackson had a responsibility towards that, but I don't think particularly, I think he was very devoted to the films. It was quite the same as Lord of the Rings for him. Right. It wasn't quite the yeah. same thing in his heart. Yeah. He'd done Middle Earth. He'd won Oscars for Middle Earth. <laughs> Did he need to go back? And yeah. the reasons he went back and I think just cast a little bit of a shadow on yeah. what he was doing. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously it's, it's been pretty well documented, you know, the, the difference in the production timeline alone, you know, you think of the massive amount of pre-production done for Lord of the Rings. I mean, they were, they were in the, uh, very beginning of this process 10 years before fellowship even was released. <laughs> and then, you know, you get into The Hobbit and I, I can't remember exactly the time frame. I want to say it's like a year and a half or something. It's kind of, it's a bit of both. Um, there had been three years of Guillermo del Toro development right. where a lot of design work was done for Guillermo del Toro mm -hmm. in his particular style. While it was yeah. going to be the same world, it was going to have a Guillermo del Toro feel, you know, yeah. clockwork, mm -hmm. uh, vast kind of machines, yeah. the dwarven kingdoms, that kind of stuff that he was mm -hmm. a bit steampunky. I think he was going to okay. bring to it. He was he developed an idea of changing the skies that he would replace the skies with these kind of mad digital skies hmm. that would give it a very different kind yeah. of look. Although he did promise it was the same world. Yeah, he was just <laughs> going to do it through his lens, yeah. which is fair enough. He was director. Yeah. And of course, Jackson didn't feel confident just to pick that stuff up. That wasn't yeah. his signature. Right. So all that kind of had to be jettisoned. Yeah. There were, there were bits and pieces that they kept, but most of it was, was jettisoned and he had to go back and look amongst the designs. And what's incredible, uh, Richard Taylor spoke to me about this, was that I think once you're successful and you have the backing of a studio, you're not trying to prove yourself as they were with, with Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. is you almost have too much freedom. And he said with mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings, Every costume or every weapon had probably three or four different versions. Mm. So with The Hobbit, they had 20 versions. Oh. There was this kind of overabundance of, of options. Yeah. That was almost inhibiting. It was, it was chaos in the sense of they were doing too much. They were creating too much because they were able to. And it created a kind of neurosis, I think, in it. that They, they became less sure of what they were doing instead of more sure. Mm. It had almost a, a backward effect on them. 
And of course, as you say, once Jackson had accepted he had to direct, he only had a matter of months mm-hmm. to hone in on the look of, of, of key things. He yeah. almost had to make up a lot of the stuff as he went along. So there's just always a sense of running to catch up with the production to kind of keep it going, keep it going, find yeah. the look of things. Uh, and it was different in a way from the, the joys of discovery that with Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings, where they found Gollum, they found a way to do it, and they found a way to do the battles. Yeah. With, with the Hobbit, it, it was a kind of sense of just keeping the whole thing coherent. Afloat. Yeah. Yeah. And with a tone of voice that, that, that they liked. I mean, Jackson said very much that he struggled with the tone of the book mm-hmm. because the book is very different from Lord it's of the so Rings. So different. Yeah. yeah. It has a sort of a, a rather jolly sort mm-hmm. of fairy tale you know, tale you know told to children at bedtime yeah which is what it was it was yeah. what Tolkien told to his children you have the narrator yeah. kind of cracking jokes at Bilbo's expense a little bit here and there yeah, yeah. it's very yeah it's very kind of ironic yeah it's, it's it's a little bit self-aware it's kind of quite postmodern <laughs> yeah. in its own bizarre way and Jackson I think had a great deal of trouble embracing that because on one hand actually that that is his kind of style if you look mm-hmm. at brain dead and and the frighteners and, and his early films that yeah. kind of slightly self-mocking quality mm-hmm. it's very jackson and i think he, he liked that but he also had this kind of great edifice of lord of the rings mm-hmm. sort of to live up to and to be part mm-hmm. of so how do you kind of marry you know jokes about dwarves mm-hmm. being a kind of bunch of punk rockers basically yeah. stumbling about middle earth with <laughs> the grandiose sort of you know, ornate uh sort of nature of of, of Lord of the Rings, and I think, I think it, it kind of struggles to maintain those two tones, mm-hmm. and bring them together. Yeah, and in some ways, I, I'd wished actually that he'd gone more crazy. Yeah, he'd yeah. gone more yeah. madcap, and yeah. just gone. I'm just going to push this into <laughs> the tone of voice of the book. I'm going to go mad with it. Yeah, and I think he had a lot of pressure from the studio though to, you know, make it more like Lord of the make Rings, make another Lord of the Rings. Yeah. yeah, to be like that, and these are the battles that he was suddenly fighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, obviously, um, and we'll get to, you know, the decision to turn it from two films into three. Um, but yeah, there, there was, seems to be, you know, from what I've read, um, a lot more studio influence, um, kind of bearing down on him for the Hobbit than there was for Lord of the Rings. You mentioned in Lord of the Rings, you know, they kind of, didn't take the flight, you know? Um, and I've heard, you know, from talking, talking with some people involved, uh, you know, at, at times there's, you've got representatives from three studios. Um, you've got, of course, you know, by then uh, new line had kind of been uh, absorbed, I guess, by Warner brothers. So you've got new line, you've got Warner brothers and you've got MGM all throwing their hats in the ring for uh, input into these films. Yes. Yeah. I think it was so hard to to kind of juggle. It was a very different point in time for for Jackson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, he had become very important. Mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah, the whole setup in New Zealand had become a, a big deal mm-hmm. in, in terms of Hollywood. Yeah, you know, they something as you say. They, they knew where New, New Zealand were, was after all. Yeah. They could take the flight. <laughs> Private jets were landing in Wellington Airport right. quite frequently. So it was a different place to make a film from. It was a different time. And he was dealing with um, not the kind of uh, the kind of passionate, rather bizarre, rather sort of eccentric voices of, of New Line as it, as it mm-hmm. was. We were an independent in, in many ways. Yeah. He was now dealing with the kind of great machinery of mm-hmm. 
particularly Warner Brothers and also yeah. bits of MGM and and HBO. I think you know there's all sorts of yeah. various people who were involved. Yeah. And I remember I was on set of Hobbit quite early. I think they were only a month into shooting, and they were doing Arrival at Rivendell stuff mm. with the dwarves mm-hmm. arrive at Rivendell. And uh, I was rather sadly all indoors. I was rather disappointed by the fact they weren't out <laughs> in the location. But you know, obviously, the, the Stone Street Studios was now a much different place and much more right. sophisticated place. But on that day, and I was I was chatting with Jackson, he pointed over, and there was a group of people sort of sat by a monitor, all wearing the 3D glasses, all wearing rather serious faces. And he goes, "That's Warner hierarchy." He goes, "Do you want to go and talk to them?" You know, and I go, "Well, I can't talk to them. I'm just a visiting journalist." You know? So I don't want to talk to them. You know, they were there already. You know, there yeah. was never that sense on Lord of the Rings that there was kind of some kind of illicit, you know, it was a bunch of Kiwis doing their magic in Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings, but there was the presence of the studio. They weren't yeah. interfering with him. They weren't mm-hmm. kind of sitting over his shoulder at all. There was none of that, right. but they were there. Yeah. And they all looked so bored. You know, <laughs> it was just like, why are you bored? You yeah. Know, Ian McKellen and there's all these dwarves, you know, and it's, it was great. And you know, they're even riding horses around the studio. It was fantastic. <laughs> But these Warner people just looked bored as they stared at the monitor. It was it was it was different. It was a different atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how you could be bored uh, on the set of Lord of the Rings in New Zealand. <laughs> I can think I cannot think of a less boring place that I would want to be. <laughs> no, I, I, honestly, I, yeah, I, I've been a very privileged guy in, in what I've done and throughout my career. But going to the, the the supplementary shoots of Lord of the Rings particularly was just fabulous. It was not just because of what you saw, and what you saw was was extraordinary and and hilarious. You know, you'd you'd go to to have the kind of the, the canteen where they all ate at lunchtime, mm-hmm. and there'd be people made up as orcs because obviously there wasn't time to take the makeup off, and all they could do was drink you know things out of cartons because they couldn't get the food in. <laughs> so all these orcs kind of like it was cartons like this, and and in would come with Ian McKellen and and Christopher Lee, and their beards had to be in nets because they might drape yeah. the food, you know, and they would queue up for, for like everyone else uh, with the catering. It was just fantastic that atmosphere, and of course you were seeing these sets and, and visiting mm-hmm. locations and. All of that. It was just an extraordinary feel. And I'd been on movie sets in Hollywood and in, in England and big productions. And there's always an element of paranoia with journalists around, yeah. you know, as if there's something is going to be revealed that shouldn't be revealed. <laughs> we have to stay and stand where we are and yeah. behave ourselves. It's all you're treated rather like a school trip. <laughs> Whereas in New Zealand, they were just thrilled to have have me there they were just so excited they wanted to show me things come have you have you been to the workshop yet come come and see this you know you're always like hold on hold on and it was like we were like i was like a child um you'd go to the workshop where all these armor and weapons and you pick up you know swords and have your photo taken with swords it's just it was a, a magical thing and it was great on the hobbit i, I wouldn't I had a lovely time on The Hobbit because Peter was so generous to me. And yeah. it was just wasn't quite as, it wasn't as thrillingly, you know, everyone in it together as, as it was yeah. in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it seems like, you know, Lord of the Rings, everything you hear is, you know, um, a little bit of uh, the ragtag team, you know, trying to pull off the impossible. And then, uh, you know, you don't, you don't get that same sense from The Hobbit, um, you know, just from, hearing stories and uh background uh information and stuff like that um so about the uh you know as a fan it was it was kind of one of those 
exciting moments like oh we're gonna get a third hobbit film and then you're excited but then you're also kind of thinking wait does that work <laughs> how does that work you know we've already had one film released um so what what uh you know what do you know of the background information on the decision to go from two to three films um and there's been a lot written and said about mm -hmm. whose decision it was and was it merely a cynical financial decision to have three blockbusters and make even more mm -hmm. money. I, I get the sense that I think there was an honest desire from, from Philippa Boyens, Fran Morsh and Peter Jackson with the scripts they had. They, mm -hmm. they were having they had a lot of things to get in and they were struggling to get it all in Yeah, uh, because they filmed so much and that was what mm -hmm. they'd done with Lord of the Rings. And they thought, well, what happens if we, we move all this stuff into a third film? Yeah, And they just bounced it off Warner. I don't think they were completely committed to it. They went mm -hmm. over and said, how do you feel about third film? Mm -hmm. And I think at that point, Warner, they started doing the calculations in their head. Yeah. And lawyers got involved. And, well, if we do this and need a bit more money to finish it, and I need this. And well, hold on. We have another trilogy. Um, you know, Hollywood's a business mm -hmm. uh, in the end. Yeah. Um, and so they're always going to have that attitude towards things that gets the share price up. That does all right. the things for you. Yeah. Um, I don't think Peter Jackson thought he was sort of being cynical. Um, right. Or I didn't get no sense that he did it you know, entirely anyway for financial reasons. Oh, no. Maybe he, right. he was being a bit, you know, overly confident and you know, this material would stretch out and, and, mm. and there'll be enough of it. And I get the sense, certainly with the third film, that he's almost sort of throwing in big moments to, to mm. fill it out a bit. Fill it, yeah, the runtime, yeah. To find, yeah, to find the film, um, which maybe he didn't need to do. I have I have quite a lot of affection for the middle film, the Desolation mm -hmm. of Smaug. I, yeah. I have some great stuff in, in Desolation of Smaug. I think from the point when they enter the kind of Mirkwood yeah. right through to the dragon stuff. I think, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's kind of, it's upbeat in terms of yeah. the tone and it's, it's lighter maybe than Lord of the Rings, but it has that kind of energy to it that I really like. Um, so in a sense, I, I kind of wish they'd done two and they had all that kind of, that, you know, the whole second film would have been like Desolation of Smaug right through right. to a battle at the end. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it, it was problematic uh, ultimately because maybe the film didn't bear the weight, uh, mm -hmm. each one of enough story. Um, but I, 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 you know, I don't think it was exploitation as it's been written mm. about. Yeah. Um, I also think they were trying to find a way to give these films that kind of weight mm -hmm. and epic quality that Lord of the Rings have. They the were Rings trying thing. to find a way of turning the thin book that is the Hobbit into the big fat book that was, that was Lord of the Rings and right. brought, brought in all the kind of backstories and the necromancer mm -hmm. stuff, Yeah, all these things. And I think with a lot of pressure from the studio to do so. Mm -hmm. And I think that was harder to, to make sense of in yeah. the end to me. Yeah. Lord of the Rings is just a much, much better book. Mm -hmm. The Hobbit. I love The Hobbits. Yeah, but it's much better. Lord of the Rings. There's oh yeah, so much more to it. Like and you said, they're tells, totally they're, different. Yeah, yeah. It's vast, and you have so much richness. You know, the great thing, actually, fundamentally, with Tolkien is he writes great set pieces for movie makers. Mm -hmm. It's really visual stuff that Tolkien yeah. comes up with. Yeah, the flight to the Ford, the fight yeah. with the Balrog, going to Lothlorien, death of Boromir. All these things. There are fantastic movie beats mm -hmm. that are provided by Tolkien. And they come yeah. again and again and again in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You have to, you, know, you go through a chapter, then Shallob turns up, you know, and all the, you got to say, my God, this stuff keeps coming on. We haven't <laughs> even got to Mordor yet. Yeah. And it's just fantastic. <laughs> and with The Hobbit, there isn't 
Mm -hmm. there's some great moments, great set pieces, but they're, they're kind of glancing in, in mm -hmm. writing. Yeah, they're yeah. much smaller to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Battle of the Five Armies, in fact, it doesn't happen in the book. <laughs> Bilbo's knocked out and he wakes up yeah. and it's done. Yeah. yeah. It's, and they're like, oh, yeah, there was a, there was a war while you were asleep. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny in the book. But, of course, when you come to the film, you're like, we, we can't have that. So we have <laughs> yeah. to invent this vast battle and put all these things in it. So they were, they were, they were forced, in a way, to sort of go beyond the bounds of Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that creates problems for them because actually the, the, the best guy at this is Tolkien right the best guy at these kind of these moments yeah is, 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 is Tolkien and mm -hmm. when Tolkien hasn't given it to you you're, you're struggling a little bit mm -hmm. yeah because I mean in in the end you know who can uh do Middle Earth as well as Tolkien nobody <laughs> you no. know um but yeah you're absolutely right which is why you know I've always uh argued against anytime someone says to me you know Oh well, they made one book into three movies. You know, I'm, I'm like, there's so much else that goes on. You know, The Hobbit is such a light and breezy thing. It was never going to work as The Hobbit is, unless it was a totally tonal, yeah, totally tonally different. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it wasn't going to work. You know, bringing in the necromancer stuff, it all made sense if you're going for that Lord of the Rings. Yeah grandiose tone and there's no way you're not going to show the battle of five armies in a yeah. in an adaptation of the hobbit it's too important to the overall story of middle earth yes absolutely but it was, it was always yeah christian rivers uh, who went on to direct mortal engines who, who was very important as a kind of behind the scenes guy in, in in rings he always said it it's like you're serving the starter after the main course you know mm. with the hobbit and you're yeah. always going to to be struggling Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'd be fascinated to know what the Del Toro version might have yeah. been like, and maybe it would have been significantly different tonally because it was just mm -hmm. his his yeah. version. And he has that kind of slightly sarcastic tone of voice in his mm -hmm. his films that might have given us something different. And he would have done two films. And, mm -hmm. I mean, who's to know? It might have been awful. Yeah. It, it might have been yeah, complete disaster. Have been. <laughs> All the things that are good about the Hobbit might have been lost. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, they're not as good as Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Then very few films are. Yeah. But I think if you just look at them as sort of fantasy movies, mm -hmm. you know, they're pretty oh, yeah. decent fantasy movies Absolutely. compared to 80% of other fantasy movies. Yeah. I think there's some really good stuff. There's some astonishing special effects. And I think Martin Freeman is terrific. Mm -hmm. You get Ian McKellen, who's just effortless, just oh doing that stuff. Yeah. And you get a great dragon. You get a great dragon yeah. for your money, yeah, yeah. Turning up, and I like that sequence with the dragon. And yeah, and so, Thor. I mean, yeah, Richard Armitage, like the Thorin stuff with his descent into madness, yeah. and I mean, it's very Shakespearean. Just he just knocks it out of the park with his performance. I felt like, especially in Battle of Five Armies. Yeah, I think yeah, he he really gives a good performance. I thought they worked very hard to create characters within you know the dozen. Mm -hmm dwarves yeah you know, it's a hard thing to do you know, yeah 12 it's honest, characters. yeah it's honestly one of, one of the things i wish you know we would have seen a little more of over the three films is the characters of uh the the dwarves i've um read through some of the the behind the scenes books and you learn you know um uh, um you know chatting with jed brophy here on the on the channel um talking about you know nori he he tends to steal stuff <laughs> and yeah, we yeah. see a little bit of that in rivendell but um you know there might have been 
other opportunities to show that and you know the relationships between the brothers uh and cousins and different groups um you know it's one of the reasons why i always watch the extended battle of five armies is for um one of my favorite moments when bofer and uh bilbo are on the wall when bilbo's sneaking out with the arkenstone and uh you know there's some great character moments um yeah. like you said and and some great casting it seems like uh you know no matter what they're doing in middle earth especially in lord of the rings but even in the hobbit they just the casting is fantastic yeah they're, they're very astute in um sort of measuring role to to, to actor mm-hmm. and i mean one of the key things that jackson always said about when they were doing lord of the rings casting was that not only have you find the right person for the role mm-hmm. you have to find the right person for the shoot Someone who's going to be able to survive 18 months right. and keep it up and stay happy and not be a pain. You know, they don't want Marlon Brando at the top of a mountain. You know, going, I'm not right. in character. You know, they don't. You can't deal with that. <laughs> yeah. Plus the Kiwi, you know, the Kiwi mentality doesn't deal with that anyway. Wouldn't jive. Yeah. Why are they showing up? You know, they're showing up all this kind of nonsense. And they didn't get any of it because all everyone threw themselves into it with absolute mm-hmm. passion. Yeah. And sort of totally bought into to, to the environment that you know, New Zealand gave and Jackson gave. In, in Viggo Mortensen's case, almost to the point of madness, where he, <laughs> he thought he was in Middle Earth at times. And he was so devoted to the whole, the whole project. But it, that, was, that was kind of just astute casting hmm. in terms of they looked at people and sensed something about them. They thought, right, you can, you can, you'll be all right to be on this, this trip with us, this journey with us. You're the right kind of person. Which is one of the reasons I think Stuart Townsend was famously fired uh, yeah. from the very beginnings of, of Lord of the Rings as Aragorn because he wasn't on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. He was too young for the role. And I think Jackson knew that. But he was just his attitude, I think. He wasn't difficult, but he was just unhappy. Mm. And they could see that. And they yeah. thought, how can we do 18 months with this right. most enormously important of characters? <laughs> and this guy's depressed already two weeks in. You know, right. It's, so I think it was key, and that's true of The Hobbit as well. You needed to find people who would have a ball as mm-hmm. much as they were professional and enjoying it. And, and they're all very different. I, I love the fact that Martin Freeman was so polar opposite to like uh, Elijah Wood mm-hmm. and Orlando Bloom, the guys who were like, I'm having the New Zealand life. I'm surfing and riding and partying <laughs> and having the best time of my time. Martin Freeman was like, no, job's done. Go home, have a cup of soup, go to bed. You know, <laughs> New Zealand can be where New Zealand is. You know, I'm totally British. And, and of course, that's much more Bilbo than it is, you know, Frodo. So there was right. a, a great sort of tuning fork for, for people who would work. So, um, I wanted to ask, I, I uh, was curious, what's your favorite story from your time covering the production of Middle Earth films and uh, <laughs> covering Peter Jackson? I don't, this is so hard because um, there were so many wonderful, uh, wonderful moments, you know, crammed into, I think I was on a set, uh, two towers supplementary shoots probably for five days, but you, you do lots of different things. So it's not like you're, you're standing by a camera for five days. You know, you're, you're, with, the, you're with the special effects people for a bit and you're traveling around. Um, and then I was about a bit longer. I was on return of the King and it was, it was so fantastic. Um, you know, I have a great memory of absurd things. Uh, yeah. I say the, the, the orcs, sorry, cats moving in front of the camera. Um, <laughs> the orcs kind of drinking and uh, being, and I had this lovely memory of 
queuing up for, for food on the catering table. And there were kind of two queues and a table down the middle of the mm -hmm. two queues. And for some reason, I end up opposite Christopher Lee. I'm on one mm. side of the table and he's on the other side, fully clothed as Saruman. Saruman. The, the, yeah. yeah, the beard is kind of held up in a net, but the rest of it, you know, talons are still on, all of it. <laughs> and we, we kind of stop and there's a bowl in front of us, a steaming bowl of something. And he kind of looks at this bowl and he looks up at me and goes, what do you think it is? And I think, well, I, I think it's a bowl of chili, Sir Christopher. You know, trying to, bing, bing, you know, and he's, oh, yeah. And he sort of, better not, better not, on, on, on set this afternoon. <laughs> and off he goes. And I'm saying, oh, wow. Then I realise afterwards, he thinks I'm catering. He thinks I'm <laughs> there to serve him, this, this, this kind of thing. And that, it was full of things like that. Um, just, and, you know, I, I got to know, I think above all, I think I got to know Peter very well, and I earned his trust. Mm. And he was wonderful to me in terms of what he opened up for me. Mm on the set and on the hobbits and subsequently when i came to write the book you know he opened up archives and mm -hmm. he gave me a lot of his time and uh, that to me was just fantastic and sort of and he, he's a fascinating guy and an interesting guy and a very humble guy mm -hmm. um he sort of sees into the absurdity of, of filmmaking and i try to get some of that out in the book that yeah it takes that kind of thing to make the Lord of the Rings, because uh -huh. I think Tolkien was kind of a humble guy. He never bought mm -hmm. into the the showiness. I mean, he hated all the adulation that came his way. Yeah, and I think that they were kind of alike in, in that in that in that respect. Uh, but just endlessly wonderful moments. Um, yeah, just meeting hobbits and mm -hmm. yeah, you know, all the, I kind of remember all the hobbit extras kept wanting to be interviewed. So you'd be standing <laughs> by catering, sort of waiting to go on set or waiting for the next thing to, to happen that you and all these kind of hobbits would come up to you dressed in the gear and go <laughs> and introduce themselves and go i'm from wakanui and i'm actually a tax collector in real life and i play this <laughs> hobbit and this is my motivation and i'm thinking this you're like uh, i'm not sure i can do anything with this but uh very nice to meet you uh, and i have a, a great memory of a particular memory of one scene which is the scene where sam hits Gollum with the frying pan Mm, Gollum yeah. is gazing into the water and yep. having a sort of conversation with himself and he's caught out by Sam in his mm -hmm. plotting and he hits him with the frying pan This wakes up Frodo and there's a great big sort of tumult that, that goes on and I, I was there for a part of that obviously it was a quite involved sequence and I just remember going on set and Fran Walsh was shooting the directing that second unit mm -hmm. Jackson was obviously off doing something very important somewhere else there were lots of second units and third units and and it was just brilliant because Andy, in his kind of leotard, was having a very intense discussion with Fran Walsh about the nature of the scene. Elijah Wood was sound asleep, you know, in character <laughs> on the ground, having a nap. Yeah. And Sean Astin, because Sean Astin is like this, decides he needs to talk to the journalist and comes out and he's kind of holding court. He has the backpack on, he has everything, <laughs> frying pan. And he's going, well, and he's, he's, he's kind of, he does these kind of lots of kind of big gestures. He talks big. Sean Astin, <laughs> like a politician. And it's just this fantastically surreal kind of tableau of, of Lord of the Rings making. You know, Elijah Wood is asleep, <laughs> and Andy Serkis and, and Fran Walsh deep in kind of concentration on some kind of golem technicality. <laughs> and Sean Astin talking about motivation and acting and America versus New Zealand. <laughs> it's just like, this is the best place in the world to be. This is brilliant. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so when, so obviously we, we mentioned before you've, uh, covered a range of directors. Um, you know, we mentioned Ridley Scott, Tim Burton, Quentin Tarantino. What uh, 
distinguishes Peter Jackson? You know, what's what's different or special about Peter Jackson compared to his peers? Um, I think one fundamental thing is it, that goes back to the kind of New Zealand spirit mm. and the nature of, of what people in New Zealand are like. And they're much more pragmatic. It's something to do with being at the end of the world. And they've been sort of left to their own devices for, for hundreds of years. So if machinery breaks down, they just have to figure out a way of mending mm. it because it would take too long to get a replacement in from the yeah. old world. <laughs> so this is kind of can-do spirit. You know, it's mm. what took them to the top of Everest first uh, with Edmund Hillary. You know, he was a Kiwi. And, mm. Okay, there's Everest. We'll get to the top of it. You know, yeah, that's a kind of a Kiwi <laughs> attitude without fuss. And I think Jackson is is sort of embalmed in that spirit. So he mm. he doesn't have any pretension at all. And not that um, Quentin Tarantino or, or Ridley Scott have pretension necessarily, but they are people much more attuned to Hollywood, mm. and then their dealings with you as a writer are much more Hollywood-like. Yeah. Whereas Jackson's never been like that. He's been completely open and honest. And He's one of the few filmmakers, I think, get the writer and get what you're doing and like what you're doing mm. and enjoying the, the kind of the relationship you're having because he kind of he grew up reading film magazines and he grew up reading film books and he he was a geek you know, yeah. and loved toys and model making and fantasy movies and Ray Harryhausen and all those things. And he's still that big kid. Yeah, he's this big kid with this kind of massive movie set and this massive sort of filmmaking playground uh, world yeah. around him. Yeah, <laughs> that he has at his kind of disposal, and I think that makes him different. There's a kind of an openness and honesty about him mm-hmm. that might make him vulnerable in some ways to, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that came with the Hobbit. And I think maybe they hit him hard, mm. and he came out of that a slightly depressed guy. Mm. Uh, you know. He, after rings and the adulation that followed. And I think he took Hobbit quite hard because mm. he'd worked so hard on it and, and yeah. you know, tried so hard. Um, yeah, he, he, he's an emotional guy like everyone else, um, but he's a terrifically dry sense of humor that sometimes you're not sure he's being funny and you have to kind of go, <laughs> oh, it's a joke. It is a joke. And you're like, okay. <laughs> he drinks gargantuan amounts of tea. Mm. And if you're interviewing him over a long period of time and you keep ha- try and keep up with him, your bladder will burst because <laughs> he has somehow got the biggest bladder of anyone I've ever known. Um, never wears shoes, as everyone knows. It's slightly yep, scruffy yep. and determinedly scruffy. Um, and just is sort of monumentally himself and mm. can't ever change that. Uh, yeah. you know, he, I don't think he sees himself as a great artist, but he is. Mm. Yeah, and it's because he doesn't see himself as a great artist that, right. that make, makes him work. Yeah, yeah. and you, you know, you mentioned you kind of touched on, uh, you know, the kind of affecting him. Uh, you know, the the criticisms thrown at him after the Hobbit, and um, you know, I I fully acknowledge. You know, I'll I'll admit all day I prefer Lord of the Rings over the Hobbit. I feel like they're better films. I don't think anyone argues that you know it's it's hard to compare anything to lord of the rings you know the hobbit was always facing an uphill battle and you know i now with the with hindsight being what it is and knowing more behind the scenes that we didn't maybe know at the time um you know i i have so much more appreciation for for what he's done across the six films um and the fact that we even have a hobbit at all is because peter jackson took it upon himself to do it and I really hope that, you know, um, you know, I've 
I've kind of been an a, a Peter Jackson evangelist to those who, uh, you know, are, are, have a more pessimistic view of The Hobbit than I do. Um, but I, I, I kind of liken it a little bit to what a lot of uh, um, fans think of George Lucas now. You know, when yeah. uh, when the prequels came out, you know, people were kind of hard on him so much so that, you know, he ends up selling Star Wars. And, you know, now, you know, we've had uh, some films under Disney and, uh, you know, their reception has been what it is. And, <laughs> you know, I feel like a lot more people are like, yeah, we had it pretty good with uh, George Lucas actually. And I, I hope that, you know, um, I think by and large, you know, people love Peter Jackson and, uh, I hope that, you know, uh, that he knows that the vast majority of the fans, um, are appreciative of, of everything that he's done. I, I'm sure he does. I, I'm sure he, um, you know, is very much at peace. I think he's very much enjoying doing documentaries at the moment. Yeah, I think he's some amazing a, documentaries yeah. too. And using his sort of his understanding and intuition about the way special effects work and applying mm. them to factual subjects is, is a mm. radical new way of going about sort of recreating history, you know, mm -hmm. discovering and opening up history. I think his Beatles documentary is probably going to be. I think it's going to be a smash hit. Oh my hit. gosh! Yeah. I I'm think, really looking forward to that yeah, one. I don't think people realize quite the devotion to the Beatles. That there oh, is he the loves world. the Beatles, yeah. Yeah, and so I think he's in a very good place as, as a filmmaker. I'd love to see him make a feature film again, mm, whatever mm -hmm. it may be. Um, I think he's very much a piece that Middle Earth is behind him. Mm. And yeah, he did Lord of the Rings, and it was an extraordinary achievement. And he did The Hobbit, and that in his own way was an extraordinary achievement. Mm -hmm. He's got it all done. I think I, I spoke to him, I think Mortal Engines time, mm -hmm. and we, we spoke about the Amazon series. And mm -hmm. yeah, he said, I was interested in terms of just having a look at the scripts. And, mm -hmm. and but he said the deal was, you know, what wasn't the way I wanted to work. You yeah. know, if he got involved, in, it would be everything cleared through the estate, everything cleared through Amazon. Mm -hmm. and he said, I, you know, he had probably had memories of The Hobbit all over again right. and Warner. And he said, I'm not going back, back down yeah. there. You know, yeah. you either give it to me and we work out between us what we're going to do with it mm -hmm. it's going to be our baby or i'll let it go and, and i'll watch mm -hmm. it at some point down the yeah. line um so i think he's very much a piece as regards that i think he's still very responsible for for weta and, and making sure the work is 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 coming in of course they're mm -hmm. they're, they're doing avatar two and oh three and four yeah. and they're yeah. very busy um so there's lots of of work um and i, I hope he'll discover some story he wants to tell mm -hmm. sort of feature film wise quite soon i'd like to see him do bad taste too you know i'd be overjoyed <laughs> if he went back and did like a splatter horror movie but with all the kind of mods and cons he can bring to it you know with his with his money now i think that'd yeah be that would be interesting a, a big budget splatter horror movie <laughs> <laughs> um so you mentioned uh obviously we have the amazon show yeah. on the horizon there's actually a part in the in the very back of your book i looked ahead a little bit like i said i'm not quite yes. there yet but um you do mention you know that that's on the horizon um you know from from someone who's uh obviously had a lot of experience with uh, with peter jackson's films what are what are kind of your thoughts and expectations with uh the amazon show well it's, it's funny when i wrote the the afterward we put it in right at the, the kind of bitter end of the, the yeah. whole production schedule in the book uh we rather expected it to to, to be, be out here by and, now uh, yeah, <laughs> it's almost been done by now we were kind of a bit worried that it was going to arrive and the book didn't mention it yeah. Um, so it's probably a little bit naive now because it, it, <laughs> it, we hadn't heard a lot about it and we were still mm -hmm. sort of speculating on what it might be. Um, 
I, I'm a bit sort of split, I suppose, mm. like most people and most fans. Yeah. You know, I, I am absolutely, like my old Empire days, hoping for a great series. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping for a, a great piece of sort of fantasy storytelling that sort of uses the great tools and, and, uh, and the great countryside of New Zealand and the great kind of world that was created by Tolkien very well. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I'm quite worried um, yeah. and skeptical. Um, I'm skeptical because you really, it's going to suffer a little bit from the problem that the Hobbit, mm-hmm. the, the big expanded Hobbit faced yeah. is that you're not actually doing Tolkien you're mm-hmm. inventing ersatz Tolkien. Right. You're you're using the the basis in the world, mm-hmm. but you're not doing Tolkien. Yeah. And really, you know, Tolkien delivered two novels, and one sort of collection of folk stories, sort of history, mm-hmm. which is the Silmarillion, which they don't yeah. have the rights to. So it's not that. Right. <laughs> they're, they're doing sort of a, a little bit, taking out one of the appendices and sort of just mm-hmm. sort of extrapolating exponentially yes. from about. <laughs> Three paragraphs, as far as I can tell. Yeah, <laughs> that that worries me, and uh, you know, it, so it won't be in my head the same as Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. They're calling it Lord of the Rings television, but it isn't that. Yeah, because I knew that book. I knew mm-hmm. it, uh, what a compelling story it was. So I couldn't wait for it to be made as a film. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to expect from Amazon. Really, I, I think it's uh, from. You probably know more than I do, but I, I, I gather it's a second age story. Second age, yeah. So automatically, my thinking is like, well, hold on, isn't the kind of the, the funny hobbits and quirky wizard stuff going to be ditched and jettisoned yeah. because that's not in that age? Yeah. And isn't that the kind of main selling point of of Middle Earth for many people who don't mm-hmm. know the books? Right. It's hobbits and wizards. Mm-hmm. So if that's gone, what are we left with? Yeah. Yeah. And we've bas- yeah, we've basically got you know we have Numenor. Um, there's a you know a possibility we could get the blue wizard, so we could have some yeah. wizards. But yeah, that you're right that you know hobbits if they're sticking to Tolkien's timeline, there's there's no hobbits in uh, the Second Age that we know of. Yeah, which makes it grand, doesn't it? It mm-hmm. makes it a bit more, I suppose, Game it's, of Thronesy, yeah. as you said earlier. Um, it's probably and, you know more like that prologue feel to Lord of the Ring is probably yeah. you know what they're hoping to capture is you know that high history um history of middle earth kind of thing um yeah i do yeah i i, I don't know i think that you run in risk of it becoming pompous mm. and jackson always said you know his great terror you know in making all of the rings was pomposity and mm. it would become ridiculous mm. pretentious and he, you know, and the way he got around that was he put a humor into Lord of the Rings. They found it, in, you know, in, in, naturally. You know, it came out of the Hobbits. Mm-hmm. It came out of Gimli. Gimli came yeah. out of the Wizards. Gandalf was very funny. Yeah, and oh, yeah, all the characters actually have their, their comedy moments, mm-hmm. which leavens it, you know, lightens it, it all. Yeah. And he, he got out of you know actors like Ian Holm and Ian McKellen and Christopher mm-hmm. Lee a kind of authenticity you know, in the mm-hmm. lines. They made it real. In, yeah, you know, it's kind of mad things they were talking about you don't, yeah. never read Tolkien remember that flame of Undun and all the kind of yeah. stuff yeah. <laughs> or, you know the kind of the conflict of the Balrog you know, on page that is just ludicrous yeah but coming out of Ian McKellen's mouth it's wonderful you know, you're yeah. like this is this is magic yeah um, and I you know the danger for me is that you know, you're just going to be a bit stiff and mm. it's just going to be a bit you know 
fantasy 101 again right. big kingdom versus big kingdom mm-hmm. evil army trounces good army and yeah. the kind of the intimacy that's there mm-hmm. in lord of the rings and and, and and the hobbit even might get lost i don't know i, I imagine yeah. they're thinking these things themselves and they're not stupid right. people these creators absolutely yeah yeah they're going through all this kind of nightmare in their heads going well what is important what is vital to anyone to feel that this is tolkien's world yeah you know it's not just elves who can be a bit arch and remote as characters mm-hmm. so what's going to make them funny what's going to bring a bit of human quality to it yeah so i, I i'm not surprised they're wrestling a bit you know and they're, they're yeah. trying things and ditching them and bringing new people in um, yeah yeah i know they're recently you know like you said they're they're not you know these are smart people <laughs> and uh you know they they understand there's certain things that you would imagine they would you know, understand, like, I know, you know, a lot of people got fired up when, you know, people were reporting like, oh, they want it to be like Game of Thrones. And, you know, obviously that blew up. Like you said, it's it's accessible. It's on on the Internet nowadays. Like that just gets blown up into all these different directions. And I'm I'm just kind of sitting here thinking like we haven't seen a trailer yet. <laughs> you know, we've not <laughs> yeah. seen footage like maybe we maybe we should calm down just a little bit. Um, but I, I look at it and think, you know, Amazon is obviously invested a lot. They are very invested in making this a series that people will like. And, you know, it would kind of be shooting themselves in the foot if they immediately said, you know, what's the opposite of what, you know, Tolkien fans would expect. Let's do that. You know? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I think that they, they, you know, they've ended up in New Zealand and that tells you straight away that they know they need some kind of spiritual connection of nothing else yeah. with the lord of the rings films yeah i mean they're within their rights to directly link them mm-hmm. you know to to clarify that this is the same world as the world of yeah. frodo and sam and, and gandalf and i imagine they would do that i would do mm-hmm. that i would I, yeah there's a young elrond has been rumored mm-hmm. hasn't it mm-hmm. so that's and galadriel line. yeah galadriel so that that makes sense uh, i yeah it's 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 a kind of tone thing that's going to be hard to, to capture because the films rather than the books have Jackson's directorial tone of voice in mm-hmm. them and his way of, of, of shooting and yeah. creating humor and adventure in films, uh, the lovely kind of swooping camera work and right. all those kind of things. Yeah. He's great sort of absorbing of the wide screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's a style there and it's, are you going to try and do that? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to kind of go for the kind of grittier, Kind of right. Game of Thrones, you know, yeah. realism, the kind of the idea of almost a medieval world mm-hmm. that's historical. Yeah. Um, but again, you, you, you're going to have trouble, aren't you? Because you've got elves and kind of big flights of fantasy that, that are in. If you take the Silmarillion as a measure of of what the films might be like, mm-hmm. or the, the series might be like, then it's big stuff. It's like it's like Greek myth stuff. It's it's yeah. kind of epic. So. You know, they've got a lot of sort of wrestling of, of things to do to, to get it yeah. under control. And even more than The Hobbit, they're going to have prying eyes on them. The internet. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know. Even Yeah, like you said, even more than The Hobbit. I think anytime, you know, gosh, I, I feel like it's breaking news if uh, the official um, Amazon Lord of the Rings account sends out a tweet or something. Yeah. It's like breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> what are you currently working on now? Or is it, is it kind of secret? Do you, no, do you have no, another... No, it's very terrifying, actually. When you, you write books and you have deals with publishers, you, you kind of get going on your book, and then they put it up on Amazon. And you're mm. like, I, I've, I've got two chapters in. You know, and it's already for sale on Amazon. Sorry, like, pre-order. Whoa. 
<laughs> I start typing all the faster, you know. It's, uh, and I, I'm sort of not. Um, I did at one point talk to Peter about maybe another Lord of the Rings book. I, mm. I got the sense he didn't want to. I think he was wanting to put it behind him. I had this idea of doing one about the actual shoot. I was mm. going to do a day by day account. It was about the most oh. microscopic version you could do. Where so it's like a diary, and but yeah. it was literally every day. And I had all, wow. I've got all the the kind of call sheets. Mm. He gave me access to all the call sheets of every day, and they they sort of tell a little story. Each call sheet, yeah, stuff about you know at the end is always lost and found. Like, <laughs> if, if you are but left their Wellington boots on set last week, you know, then it's like there's a party on Saturday. You know, Vigo's leaving party. It's these lovely little details. That, <laughs> and I was going to try and then sort of connect it to the outside world and see what was mm. going on in the, the real world while all this was happening. And yeah. I just get, but I just got a sense he he thought that would be too much of a workload and was yeah. doing his documentaries and so I, uh, maybe one day we can come back to that. Um, yeah. But in the meantime, I've uh, I've just finishing a book on Guillermo del Toro that oh. fits in with my series that uh, includes Tim Burton and Quentin mm-hmm. Tarantino, and I am working on a book on the Coppolas, you know, the, the great mm. filmmaking oh, dynasty, yeah. which is a very different kind of story. Yeah way of doing a film book you know it's a very because uh, you're, you're covering traveling over a lot of time and mm-hmm. a lot of different films and then you kind of you've got the godfathers and apocalypse now so you've got these yeah. huge stories within it and it's a sort of a story about film culture and the way it changed you know obviously mm. everyone knows easy riders and raging bulls but yeah just within the context of, of coppola it's very interesting you know who he was and yeah drives him you know still alive so he's not gone anywhere but right you know, and he, then you know, who was his filmmaker so and now you know his daughter it's his daughter, right? Is it his yes, daughter, Sophia? Sophia? Yeah. Yeah. His daughter, yeah. So she now is almost the, the bigger Coppola. Yeah. He's right. Yeah. 80 and she's now the, the kind of the more famous Coppola. And, and, you know, in what way she is kind of like him or way she's different from him. Mm. And she grew up on the movie sets, you know, mm-hmm. she, she, she was the oh, baby yeah. in, the, in the Godfather. She was four years old in the Philippines while they were shooting Apocalypse Now. Wow. So she's lived that life firsthand. Life. Yeah. So, as a filmmaker, she's full of that. Yeah. Yeah. Her films are very kind of dreamy and ethereal mm. and yeah, very different from his. Um, yeah. A lot of those, her films, I think are about hotels. And mm. I think she's oh, a girl yeah. who spent a life in hotels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think about it, you know, obviously lost in translation, but I think they're very, you know, films about being trapped in hotels and that being your entire world. That's interesting. When you say something about her life. <laughs> <laughs> very fun. Oh man. Well, that's that's cool. I, yeah, I'll look forward to those, and definitely, um, you know, I hope I hope that comes to fruition one day. The uh, day yes. by day of Lord yeah. of the Rings. That sounds really that sounds really interesting to to have that it, kind it, of it, glimpse. It, it, it was quite a challenge to try to figure out. Yeah, if you've got you know something like two hundred and forty something days, yeah, including all the supplementary shoots, and if you did the 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 miniature unit, it's something like seven hundred days. You couldn't oh my do that. Gosh. Yeah, um, but and then you have to kind of keep a variety in your story mm-hmm. so some of the entries i plan to be like no more than a paragraph yeah it's a, it's a washout today everyone play yeah. chess you know, like, you know <laughs> like, as little as that and other ones would go on for pages because there mm. would be debates about why tom bombadil's not in it you know oh and, yeah you got sort of mad tangents mm-hmm. but come back to the right and the next morning you know they were out in queenstown you know trying <laughs> to do this and the weather was being okay to me i wanted this kind of yeah. idea that it's dragged on and on and on and wow. somewhere in the outside world you know governments are being elected and falling right. and, <laughs> and life carried on yeah know? it is kind of crazy you know how they were you know like you said it's you know most people couldn't 
tell you where New Zealand was on the map at that time. You know, it's it's so secluded and they're just kind of off off on their own. You know, this band of people making one of the greatest cinema trilogies of all time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Separate uh, from the world. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, they were kind of in a, in a cocoon in a way. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it was so small. I mean, that's what state when you went out there. Um, obviously, what they were creating was very big, but the actual fabric of it, the sets mm. were, were fantastic, but the whole place was very small. You know, you, were, yeah. you walk out of one sound stage and catering would be literally 10 feet in front of you with like corrugated roof <laughs> and everyone always, always raining. So you have to kind of dash between places to get to other places and all very run down because it was a mm. former paint factory. It still had a, the look of a former paint factory. And it was all so fantastic. I think that's what I mean, we didn't really say, it, but one of the things that rather perturbed New Line was when they got there, they looked at this thing and they thought, what the hell? This is like a <laughs> ramshackle old paint factory. How are we creating it? You know, spending 200 plus million dollars. And this is where it's happening. They just couldn't get their heads around that. You know, where's the luxury? Where's the Hollywoodness? Yeah. Of course. They yeah. wouldn't spend any money on that. So I usually do some uh, kind of. Um, rapid fire questions towards, toward the end here, um, okay. to get, to get your perspective on, uh, um, some of your favorite things. So what's your favorite character? Um, and we can, we can specify book, you know, you, you obviously have read the book, so, um, we could go with book and movie. If you want to take that easy road and pick one from each, that's totally fine. There's no rules here. So who's your favorite talking <laughs> character? Um, I try and do them separately. I, I do uh, in terms of the books. Um, I loved um, Aragorn, especially. I love Strider. I loved mm. Strider before he became Aragorn. I, I yeah. he was because uh, yeah, he was the ranger and he was wild and a bit ambiguous and yeah. enigmatic. And he has a great entrance. And uh, I loved Sam as well. Mm. Sam, he was always my kind of. He was kind of. The, the, he was kind of, for me. He was the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that reading of the books were actually it's Sam's story. Yeah, and because he's the the ordinary guy, and yeah. Frodo is the kind of more heroic mm-hmm. idea. So Sam and, and Strider are my other two favorite, and a bit of Faramir as well. Late on, mm. um, in terms of the films, it kind of changes. It's still like my, my argument about why Friends as a sitcom is so good is that you can watch it with the attitude that each one of them is the funniest one. Ah, and you're right yeah. every time. You think Phoebe's the funniest one in Friends, and you watch it with that in mind. Phoebe's the funniest one. Ross yeah. is the funniest one. Watch it again and just think that. Ross is always the funniest one. Every one of them is the funniest one. Yeah. That's why it's brilliant. And in a way, I, you know, the, film, the films of, of Lord of the Rings have that quality. Mm. The best one is Pippin. Watch it. The best one is Pippin. And you're like, He's brilliant, <laughs> Pippin. It's the yeah. Pippin story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, but I, I would really, because uh, Andy has become a friend and someone who's, who's helped me out a lot mm. and I think achieved something both uh, as an actor mm. and as um, a kind of scientist and creator with Gollum that fulfilled the promise of, of the books uh, yeah. in, the, in that character, created a life for that character, which is vital mm-hmm. to uh, the storytelling and, what makes him something you know, more grown up than other fantasy stories? You know, he's yeah. gone, and obviously just achieved something that was transforming for for an industry as mm-hmm. well. So, Gollum, I would go for with uh, finally is the my movie yeah. character. That's a great answer. Yeah, I've I've often thought you know um, there's there's kind of this this thing with um, 
you know, awards in Hollywood, you know, the, the motion capture performances, even though they've, you know, turned into this huge pivotal uh, thing in the industry, they never get any awards love. And I, I've always thought, you know, if you're not going to nominate them, then at least create a new category and call yeah. it the Andy circus award for, you know, digital performance or something. Cause yeah, I, it's hard to, yeah. I mean, it, it's gotta be up there with, you know, some of the all time, you know, uh, most significant uh, changes to the industry. I think just think about it as an acting challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has huge monologues that are duologues. Basically he has <laughs> scenes for himself. Yeah. And he had to create basically two separate characters that were still somehow the same character mm-hmm. and not show the joins. So you're never entirely sure at what point Smeagol gives way to Gollum and Gollum comes back into Smeagol. Yeah. You know, the, the border is blurred. Mm-hmm. And that's brilliant. That's kind of, and you'll never, and he said what's vitally important to how he portrayed Gollum is that you don't know whether the real person is Gollum or the real person is Smeagol. Mm-hmm. You don't know who the true because it's not, it's both. It's a mix yeah. of both. And and that was a really sophisticated idea in terms yeah. of characterization on a screen. How you create this character. And to be funny and right. to do a lot of really co- good comedy stuff yeah. in the film. And at the same time, to, to have to do scenes twice and wear it hard <laughs> and figure out all this kind of motion capture stuff and work with the animators. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, I mean, he far more than just an actor on those films he was yeah you know, he was an you know, absolute collaborator in the creation mm-hmm. of, of that character absolutely yeah they i it's hard to imagine anyone ever topping his golem for sure yeah. um all right so of tolkien's works that you've read which book is your favorite um well, I mean, it's Lord of the Rings as a whole is the, the great story. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just a monument to to storytelling. Yeah, and you know, it's derided in in many circles, not seen as literature. All these people attack it, but they don't understand the fundamental power of how compelling a piece of storytelling it is. Mm-hmm. For a fourteen year old to read a thousand pages is a miracle, right? <laughs> uh, and that comes down to the fact that Tolkien is extraordinary in just the texture and mm-hmm. the suspense. You know, the the, the the way he builds up fear and terror, and the, mm-hmm. as I was saying before, there's wonderful set pieces, these wonderful visualized events. Yeah, you know, it's it, the reason we talk now about this, and we, there's been these great films and all this. Is in the end, Tolkien's imagination. Yeah, and so. Rings is is the great book for me. Um, mm-hmm. I always liked Two Towers um, as the one as amongst the three. Yeah, I think I liked it because it, it, when it still had, I liked the divided form. And I know that you couldn't mm-hmm. do that on film; they had to kind right. of edit them together. But I liked that you got one half of the story: the Aragorn, yes. Legolas part, yeah, you know, Gimli part, and then yeah. you got the other part, the, the Frodo and Sam bit. And I liked the fact we kind of switched mm-hmm. halfway through, and each one built up to an incredible finale. Yeah, and the suspense involved in Two Towers—you know, you build up to Helm's Deep, and then you build up to Shelob's Lair, and all of that. Yeah, that's just fantastic. So within Lord of the Rings, it probably still is the Two Towers. Yeah, I was—it's—it's it's funny, uh, you know, explaining to people. Oh yeah, well, the Lord of the Rings—it's one book, but it's divided into three books, and each book has two books, <laughs> and. <laughs> It's a little bit like the the old bit of uh, you know in the United Kingdom, how many countries are in this country? You know, as an American, it's kind of like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I feel like I I give that to people in the sense of uh, Tolkien's books as well. Um, yeah. So so uh, so favorite book, um, 
what what is your favorite of the middle earth films oh that's, that's, that's a tricky one um yeah. I, i'm now like most people married to the extended cuts of, mm. of the lord of the rings Absolutely. i haven't watched the theatrical cuts for for, for a long time so I, I, i'm not sure i even remember which bits right. were, were not in the theatrical cuts <laughs> anymore um so uh, what would i go i don't know can i vacillate a bit um I do love the extended cut of the two towers. I think mm. it's the one that, that gained the most from yeah. the, the kind of uh, being moved on. I think bits of it uh, really can expand it out the, the whole mythology very well. Mm -hmm. So I really love that, that version, but I think fellowship is, is a wonderful piece of just more old fashioned yeah. epic kind of um, men on a mission mm -hmm. kind of fantasy storytelling there that yeah. has a much more linear path. Right. And has a great emotional finale to, to bring it to, to the death of Boromir. And that is just a, a great piece of just sort of classical filmmaking. So mm -hmm. I, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say Fellowship and Two Towers, uh, <laughs> extended editions. Uh, yeah. But not to say I don't love Return of the Kingston edition either, because that's that's great. But uh, maybe the extended edition of Two Towers is, is the one mm. that I think has the most texture to it. In, yeah. In terms of different things going on. Yeah, that's a great yeah, that's a great answer. I know I, I think I've read uh Elijah Wood mentioning, you know, with, with fellowship, you have the advantage of, you know, everyone's together. And yeah. like you said, it's more more linear story and really it was a perfect entryway into Middle Earth for people like myself who had no experience whatsoever. Um it's hard to top that first experience in Middle yeah. Earth, you know. Um <clears throat> excuse me. So Here's a, a fun hypothetical question for you. So yeah. if you lived in Middle Earth, <laughs> what what race would you be? Would you be a dwarf, elf, hobbit, man? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. And I remember having um, good conversations with Dan Henner, who's the production designer on, on both mm -hmm. of these. Lo lovely, lovely guy. He looks like a slightly older brother of Peter Jackson. Big mad hair. <laughs> um, lovely, gently spoken guy. And you can have really dense conversations with him about the fabric of, of, of Middle Earth. And we had a long conversation about shops and commerce. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. Where do you see shops? Yeah, Who sells? And how, where do they buy their food? You, know, <laughs> you live in Rohan. Where are the shops? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was very funny about it. In fact, the interesting thing is in The Hobbit, when you get to Lake Town, they were actually quite conscious of showing you a much more kind of credible economy at work. You do see yeah. shops and, and places. Yeah. Um, so I'll go with um, a place that needs shops and pubs. And so I will go with being a hobbit because you get to go to the pub yeah. and you get to go to parties <laughs> and you don't have to like join the army or anything and ride horses, any of that rather risky stuff. <laughs> and you don't have to live for 10,000 years um, with your lovely blonde hair. Right. Being an elf, um, <laughs> where it looks quite dull. So I, I probably like most people, I, I think I'd, I'd be a hobbit and yeah. have one of those lovely little sort of Edwardian homes, yeah. sit up, smoke my pipe in my front garden and then watch the sunset and then go to the pub in the evening. That sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. It's hard to, hard to beat that as much. I, I feel like as much as we would like to say like, yes, I would be the one going on epic quests and fighting battles. It's like, no, we'd, we'd much rather just live in the Shire and eat and drink and smoke and all that. <laughs> I did uh, on a on a recent live stream. I I had uh, one of the best hypothetical questions that someone presented was, uh, "What would you if you were opening a business in Middle Earth? What would it be?" 
My answer was I would sell black arrows in Lake Town. And, you know, they they brought up the point, well, what what if it's after Smaug died? And I said, then they'd be souvenir black arrows. So you could have <laughs> One of the famous arrows might come back. Yeah, just in case. Deterrent (laughs) arrow. Um, So yeah, eagle wrangling. I would, you know, if I can Mm. cut a deal with the eagles, (laughs) then I cut out all that walking. You know, right? Win them over, eagles. The great argument, like why don't they just fly into Mordor on the back of an eagle and drop the ring? Yeah, I would figure that out. I'd create eagle airwaves. Eagle airwaves. uh, Eagle eagle (laughs) airwaves, and we will. Yeah, you know, we will flit about Middle Earth, you know, like private jets. Yeah, uh, they'll be in it. I, I give them a cut, you know, some yeah. top quality, you know, meat to eat. Meat, raw yeah. Meat. And some we'll... <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good one. I I really like that, man. We've got some good business ideas for my life here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, you mentioned, you know, you would be a hobbit living in the Shire. What would be your pick of a place to visit? Visit. That's a that's a good one. Um, if it's just a visit, then mm-hmm. and I don't have to stay there too long. It's got to be the mines of Moria. Mm. Um, and as long as we're at a time when they've cleared out, you know, some yeah. of the bad elements. You know, we've been in, we've removed all the kind of the no Balrog, no yeah. Balrog, post all of that. Because um, it's just you know, it's just it's a wonder, isn't it? I mean, in terms mm. of all those original artwork that were done, I always loved the ones of, of Moria, especially. Yeah, you know, those endless winding stairways and this kind of idea of a labyrinth that's so you know complex you can never get your head around it yeah uh, so i was always enchanted uh, by the idea of of moria and the way they do the kind of the great hall with the kind of the, the pillars is so spectacular you'd, you'd want to see that i think yeah yeah i always wondered about the air quality in moria how that <laughs> how they yes. achieve that you would think that it would be a little stifling musty, there, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah yeah <laughs> um so as someone this this is is it's not a rapid fire question but it's something i i thought about is you know um someone who had read the books before um you know obviously one of the biggest departures for the uh peter jackson films from the books is uh the scouring of the shire not being you know part of the films which from a filmmaking perspective is totally understandable um, was there a little part of you that was sad that the scouring of the Shire wasn't in there? <laughs> um, I didn't especially miss scouring of the Shire. Um, yeah, it was a great debate about you know Tom Bombadil and and the, and oh, the old yeah. forest and all that stuff. And it, it's kind of interesting because um, all that stuff's really really kind of good Tolkien stuff because he hadn't really figured out what where he was going with the story. Mm-hmm. In a way, he sort of set off and writing Lord of the Rings and. And you read the first few chapters, and they're very different to sort of post um, Aaron's Council, mm, post all yeah. that stuff. Um, so I think it, you know, there's a kind of really weird sort of Tolkien-y world at the beginning that's mm-hmm. almost a little bit more like The Hobbit, a bit more that says a lot more about him as an author. Yeah, and that slightly mystical, uh, slightly hippie-ish quality. Those those chapters <laughs> have a lot of songs and yeah, and yeah, it's got. A, very different quality. So I understand fully why they, they had to kind of get rid of it because mm-hmm. it breaks all the film rules. Yeah. yeah you're not getting on with the story. You know, right. It's slowing it down. And it's, yeah. it's sowing confusion as well, isn't it? Who is this guy? How does he be, how is he able to hold the ring and no <laughs> right. one else does? And what, what is his wife? You know, yeah. like, who is his wife? You know, what yeah. is she? It's a water <laughs> spirit or whatever. But I love the idea of the, the you know, the tree that craps, captures mm. them and, and all that. So I, a little bit of me was a bit like, I'd love to have seen, something of that yeah but i totally get why it wasn't in in, mm-hmm. in the films it, it made sense um you know fog on the downs all that kind of rather eerie oh, stuff. yeah yeah i it's think quite, that's the 
yeah, that that the fog on the down, you know, with the barrel whites. I feel yeah. like with with Peter's uh, experience with the horror stuff, I could I yeah, could yeah. see that being really amazing. I feel like, you know, uh, for all the Tom Bombadil lovers that uh, were sad to see him go, I I totally understood that, but. Um, there was part of me that would love to have seen Peter Jackson do fog on the barrel down. Yeah. 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 That would have been very cool. That sequence. But, uh, yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's, it's a thousand pages that book. You, you've got to, <laughs> yeah. you've got to just spend it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's one of those things, you know, you, you kind of, uh, it, it, it kind of made the most sense to cut, you know, it's, it's a chunk of the book. You can just, remove and it doesn't really change what comes yeah. after for the most part <laughs> they get to brie you know it's yeah like they yeah. travel they're chased by black riders they get to brie you know, yeah yeah that's what yeah. you need and then yeah. we meet strider so it's kind of that's the narrative moving forward yeah not dallying around with strange <laughs> wood woodland people and it would just confuse the heck out of people who had not read the book they'd be like what was that? <laughs> Who is this guy? It's like, oh, we're not going to talk about him anymore, actually. <laughs> well, I suppose that Scaring of the Shire is an interesting one in the sense that it brings in a, a, another element in, in mm -hmm. you know, that kind of idea of industrialization. And that's a kind of yeah. form of evil that mm -hmm. was represented by Mordor, but is sort of exemplified by that chapter and, and Saruman. And yeah. that would have been interesting. But mm -hmm. I get it because, you know, you've got to finish this story at right. some point. You've got to, yeah. you know, because everyone's a bit like, well, they've got rid of the ring. They've been yeah. celebrated. Aragorn's <laughs> got, you know, sung at his own wedding and it's it's all yeah. happened. And now they're saying goodbye again and again. And, you know, yeah. We can't suddenly have another battle scene. Right. And 40, Chris 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my God, Chris Lee's still there. But, it, you know, if it had been a television series, mm. if it had been like Game of Thrones, that would have been a really nice idea to throw in mm. right at the end. Yeah. Just that bit, like, oh god, he, you know, he's not dead yet, right? And he's, he's, you know, and he's got a weird plan to take over Hobbiton. Mm -hmm. Yet the Hobbits are now totally able to to yeah. deal with him in their own right. You know, they they've changed. So yeah, and it's kind of neat how you know Saruman he, uh, you know, falls from the you know not only being a great wizard, but he had these mighty ambitions of you know getting the ring and he could control all Middle Earth. And it's like now he's reduced to just. <laughs> controlling the shire yeah. the you know the rural folk of, of local, local industry in, in hobbiton now he's just yeah. taking over the hill. <laughs> well ian thank you so much for joining us today it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh folks the book once again peter jackson if i can get in frame there peter jackson and the making of middle earth fantastic um fantastic book a lot of uh great uh, behind the scenes looks um, obviously Ian reporting on his set visits and you know the history of the production it's if if you love Peter Jackson's movies if you like Tolkien in general you will definitely love the book um, so yeah Ian thank you so much for joining us today no, thank you it's been, been a great pleasure thank you all right well we'll see you guys next time here on Nerd of the Rings thanks so much for listening to this audio podcast of Nerd of the Rings to get the latest Middle-Earth-related videos, including Tolkien Explained, Complete Travels, and Theories, visit youtube.com slash nerdofthereings. This audio podcast is made possible by the support of my wonderful Patreon supporters. To learn how you can score some exclusive perks while supporting the channel, visit patreon.com slash nerdofthereings. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Nerd of the Rings.